0: Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's your dad, Folks, The Big Picture is on WCPT A20. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath.
1: Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. It's, um, you know, the weekend before a mayoral election in Chicago. God, I love that. Um, this is not a show about local politics. So let me turn. Uh, hang on, I need to say something to Paul. Paul, the echo is now back. Um, all right, while we work on that, let me keep going. I took a break from politics and last night went to see a performance of the Joffrey Ballets, Reimagined Anna Karenina. This. Um, filled the enormous Lyric Opera House where the production was staged. And it was not, you know, your grandma's kind of dance. They used multimedia and advanced stage and lighting effects. Um, uh, uh, Excuse me, they used advanced stage and, and lighting effects to Uh, sort of create amazing atmospheres. And the performers showed how contemporary ballet has assimilated movements and ideas from every kind of dance medium. It was astonishing and beautiful, and the audience loved it. And less than two miles away, in a new and very popular music venue called the Salt Shed, where My Son Works, a band called the Viagra Boys played. Now, I don't know anything about the performance. What I do know is that a large and rowdy crowd assembled, um, carrying Confederate flags and, I'm told, belligerents. They also loved it. Why is any of this relevant to a show about politics in America? Uh, let me see if I can connect those dots. Uh, often people call in and they ask why other folks don't see the obvious lies for what they are. Or they suggest that if only people paid closer attention to what was going on, we wouldn't be in this mess. I'm not sure I agree with that. Or at least I, I don't agree with the moral point that people should be paying a lot more attention. If everyone was as attentive to politics as I am, or as many of you are, there would be no gorgeous production of Anna Karenina. There would be no noisy, but so far safe outlet for aggressive, if misguided young men. There would be only politics and judgment. And look, the end of politics can either just be power, or maybe it could be well, to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. You've heard that before, certainly. Um, uh, if it's the latter, as our founders had hoped, then the dynamic force to get us there is not, it's just not generated in our politics, but in our culture, and the politics follow. And if we better understood that point, we would be better defended. Look, Tucker Carlson is called a journalist, our mistake, because he has a TV show that appears on a network that pretends to be about news. He is not a journalist, and his show is not about news. It is, however, a show about us, about our culture. And he is offering for inspection imaginary gar. I want to get this quote right, imaginary gardens with real toads in them, which is um, from a poem by Marianne Moore. She told us that's what poetry does, imaginary gardens with real toads. And it shaped how we think. Look, he, and this is what I mean by that, He he's led his viewers to construct a reality for themselves that connects to the world the rest of us live in through sort of shafts of light that land on little spots, those uh, real toads. A laptop here, a book there, a cross over here, a conspiracy over there. And we're not any different than those Dutch folks in the early 17th century whose mania for tulips led the price to go through the roof and eventually crash their economy. Fox viewers have adopted a manic set of falsehoods, and it it has the potential to crash everything. Uh, Now, like I said earlier, and thank goodness, large societies like ours are filled with people who don't pay very close attention to politics. And, and, And as we've seen, whether it's the Dutch tulips or the American fox watchers, large societies are not immune from cultural manias that lead groups astray. Now, the balance of powers in our government provides some measure of protection from both passions, these manias, and ignorance, people who don't really pay attention. And and something that we call oversight is meant to protect us from governments that take advantage of our distraction to use the power, particularly in the executive branch, for private ends. Now, here I'm thinking of Harry Truman. Harry Truman was in charge of the Senate Oversight committee before he was vice president. This was during World War II, And he, you know, took on military contractors um, uh, to try and get them to produce the weapons we needed without cheating the taxpayers, or frankly, delivering stuff that was low quality. Of course, all the contractors accused him of slowing down the effort to build a modern army. They said he was helping Tojo and Hitler. They really gave him a hard time. But the system held and he worked tirelessly, often against those who, you know, questioned his patriotism. He followed the facts and his work uncovered waste and fraud and inefficiencies that ended up saving taxpayers roughly $15 billion that went back into the armaments for World War II. Um, making, um, at the time, making our war production the most efficient and effective in the world. George C. Marshall, George Marshall, the Marshall Plan guy, the man in charge of the war effort, was one of Truman's biggest supporters because he could see that each dollar expended yielded better and better results because of his careful oversight. Um, So you can see how effective oversight can be to help us stay focused during a time of really great passion. But when Truman became vice president, the committee fell to a guy named Joe McCarthy and the era of honest oversight gave way to witch hunts, cruelties, and lies. i got to pause for a second. Paul, it's back again. Um, today, the oversight is in the hands of representatives Jim Comer and Jim Jordan. But in today's culture, they uh, um, they're there just to find objects for Tucker Carlson to shine his light on. This is the how this loop works. The, they, the the select items that they will find by their use of subpoena power are only there so that Tucker can point a light on them and tell a fake narrative to keep the mania going. You know, um, on most nights. In the salt shed in Chicago, thousands of young and diverse people come together to enjoy music and dancing, a few drinks and lots, lots, you know, lots and lots of friends. Last night was no exception, but because of the, the mania machine on the right, last night's fun was tainted by the habit of intimidation. So here I am in a show about politics telling you. Every week that elections matter, that politics matter, but now confessing, and, and, and it's a little embarrassing, I guess, that culture is everything, and we need to focus on that every day. Only then will we help our fellow Americans see more than Tucker and his Stooges running congressional oversight are showing them. Only then, you know, um, will we end this dangerous mania that threatens to destroy the world's greatest democracy. Look, this is why I love local Democratic efforts, like the ones I, I see around Chicago in this uh, uh, election period, or like the ones built by LaVora Barnes in Michigan and Ben Wickler in Wisconsin. Yes, absolutely, they are about politics, but they're about more By giving people on ramps to organized action that seeks to get people to work together to improve the conditions in one community after another, they're building a resilient, small-D democratic culture. And that is the kind of culture that will be strong enough, strong enough to resist that spotlight of atrocities that comes on Fox News every night and creates this mania amongst most of our citizens, or not, not most, thank God, not most, many of our citizens, and certainly most of the Republican caucus these days. Poor things. Anyway, uh, in part because of all of what I just said, I am thrilled that Ben Wickler is going to join us uh, this morning. And um, uh, we're going to take a quick break because it's commercial time and I have to fix this uh, echo, and then we're going to be on with Ben. So stay with us.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, we are back. And I'm joined now by someone who is uh, by now familiar to everyone on this show. And I think everyone on this station, Ben Wickler, the remarkable leader of the Wisconsin Democrats. Ben, th- thank you for joining me and welcome back.
2: So great to be with you. Um, this is this is the moment, man. Wisconsin hinges on what happens now, and the country hinges on what happens in Wisconsin. So, it couldn't be a better time to connect.
1: Well, right. Uh, you know, and I have called Ohio the land that democracy forgotten. You might say the same thing about Wisconsin, except that you are building a small D democratic culture every day. And unlike in Ohio right now, you have the chance of making progress and restoring some democratic politics in that, in that state. So um, w- when we talked before, there were two enormously important races in Wisconsin for the Supreme Court and for an open state Senate seat. I guess let's remind everybody why that's so important. And then, of course, you just had a primary. What happened?
2: Yeah. So the Supreme Court race is the kind of mother of, of the enormous political consequence. Wisconsin has a state Supreme Court, but a fourth free Republican majority But the chief justice, a hardcore ultra-mega Republican, has just stepped down, which means it's an open seat. And whoever wins on April 4th in the general election will determine the balance of power in the Supreme Court, which then could... Result in the total near total abortion ban being struck down in our state. It could result in the mid decade redistricting, which could end the ultra gerrymandered maps that have really poisoned Wisconsin politics. It could end the threat of the Supreme Court overturning the presidential election in 2024, which is a nightmare scenario that unfortunately is you know, something we have to actively plan against. So there are enormous stakes in that. The other race that you're thinking of is the State Senate District 8 race, which is just 133rd of the state. It's the kind of northern Milwaukee suburbs, Ozaukee County, And they're a kind of moderate, as far as moderate, as far as Republicans go, state senator has retired, leaving open a seat that will be filled with a special election. And on the right, you have an ultra, ultra mega Republican who's one of a handful of legislators who wrote to Mike Pence and asked him not to accept his own state's electors in 2020. And on the other hand, Jody Habersinikin, who is a business owner, attorney, mom in the district uh, who have deep connections to the community and would be a terrific replacement that matters because if Republicans hold that seat, they will have a super majority in the state Senate. And that has a bunch of consequences we can get into. So those two races are of enormous consequence, especially the Supreme Court race where we just had a primary and the, the furthest right extremist Republican came through and Janet Protasewicz, who's now our endorsed uh, champion that the progressive, uh, the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, very proud to endorse Janet. If she wins, we will restore balance and sanity and you know, the rule of law to the Wisconsin judicial system with consequences for everybody.
1: Well, I I guess I want to get into like the different vote totals, how many more Democrats voted than Republicans if they did. What did we learn in, in, you know, just sort of from the from the way you look at votes after the primary this cycle?
2: Yeah. So in the primary, there were two progressives and two conservatives. Uh, one progressive judge, Everett Mitchell, who's terrific, he's a, a Madison area judge, uh, he got about 7%. Janet Protosawitz got 47%. And so when you have them together, that's 54% compared to the two conservatives who got 46%. That's an eight-point landslide in favor of the progressive justices. And even by herself, Janet got more votes than the two conservative candidates put together, which anyway, you cut it, is a, is a great way to enter the general election. But, and this is a big caveat, it has happened before that the, the person who got the most votes in the first day of the primary lost the general election. So we cannot take this for granted at all. This is all hands on deck. And there's a, a right-wing talk radio host who's been tweeting, uh, every national conservative needs to get involved in this race if we – if they think if we lose – he wrote, everything we built under Scott Walker is going to fall apart instantly. And they view those as mistakes. I think they're not wrong that they're massive, massive stakes. So we have to expect the the GOP money machine to crank into gear like we've never seen it before in a judicial race.
1: Well, it apparently has cranked, right? Um, uh, uh, The Uleens have uh, already dumped their dark money in, in, and I assume there's always more where that came from. And that was devastating in the uh, in Mandela Barnes' case, certainly. So I know you're right to be worried about it.
2: That's right. And this is just for folks not familiar with the Uline family. Uh, Dick and Liz Uline specifically, there's actually some Ulines who are progressive, but Dick and Liz Uline, they were the biggest Republican donors in the country in the 2022 presidential cycle, or excuse me, midterm cycle. They massively funded this just horrific smear campaign against Mandela Barnes. They're running very similar ads now, attacking Janet Protasiewicz. So we have to expect them to just double and triple down. But, and this is significant, Janet, in terms of direct support to her campaign, and in terms of what we're seeing coming into the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, it's much more than you see on the Republican side. And so, we actually have a chance in this race, in in state races like this, unlike the Senate race, the Democratic Party of Wisconsin can play an unlimited role in supporting our candidate's campaign because it's a state campaign governed by law, which. doesn't put a, a cap on what the party can do. And so the, the combined forces of the party and the candidate and a bunch of grassroots organizations and, and independent groups that are all, you know, throwing down in this race. If we all do everything we possibly can, if everyone listening, chips in and volunteers every way they can, it could be enough to, to overcome even the, the might of these Republican, you know, deck of billionaires who are, who are flooding the zone in this thing. And that. That's what, what happened in the governor's race last year. That's what we can do right now. So that is a laser focus, is making sure we don't get uh, out-communicated or out-organized by the, the dark money groups on the other side.
1: Okay, guys, uh, go to West Dems and, and donate, please. Uh, sign up, um, if not with the party, then, I don't know, with Swing Left, which I know is working in the state. There are lots of organizations that have heeded Ben's call, and you should too. Oh, Ben, I I guess I want to ask you um, just a a different kind of question for a minute. We've been talking on the radio, you and I, for more than a year. Um, We've never met in person, but we've had these conversations. You've carried the weight of the, the knife's edge of the fight to hold the democracy because Wisconsin's got this weird sort of, you know, position is, is a keystone if it falls the whole thing crumbles so so i mean h- how are you holding up how is it I mean, that is a lot of pressure for an extended amount of time and you don't sound like you've aged like 300 years in the one year that we've been having this conversation
2: i have to say the thing that hardens me and gives me so much energy Is the fact that there are so many people who refuse to give up in the face of what can be an almost overwhelming level of of threat and a really dystopian Republican machinations to stomp on the idea of democracy. But when you do this work, you meet these extraordinary people, folks in in rural areas where Republicans are just dominating, but the Democrats are actually growing the number of votes that turn out. People in suburbs that had been bright red Republican uh, areas, but instead are are now starting to become pink and purple and, you know, when they could be blue. People in cities driving turnout to unprecedented numbers or overcoming voter suppression that Republicans have, have you know stomped on, on the vote in Milwaukee especially. And to be a part of a community of people like that who are dedicated to the belief that everyone should have a voice in the democracy, it is energy generating. It's what makes this actually joyful even when it can feel yeah. so frustrating to to have the right you know, hammering us at every turn. And that that's, I hope, something that everyone has a chance to do is to walk into a room full of people who are just pouring their hearts into making something bigger than themselves happen that, that will benefit everyone, people they've never met. You can't be part of something like that without getting inspired.
1: See, I, I love that answer. And it reminds me, I've, I've said this before, there's a line in, in the play Hamilton, Right now, that was a pretty dangerous time. There was a lot at stake and it could have gone either way. And they said how lucky we are to be alive right now, right? To be in a time where the things you do make a huge difference. And so you get to say to people, you know, you're not living in one of those times where your life doesn't matter. It Everything you do matters. And that is pretty exciting.
2: That's exactly right. If this is... One of those times they happen every generation, I guess, uh, where the basic fabric, the basic idea of America is contested. It, it's a fight. Are we going to become essentially an authoritarian kind of state, a you know, ethno-religious nationalist country and state where a small group of people get to decide everything? Or will we be a democracy? And there are forces marshaled on the other side. And now several times in a row, we've shown that if we all get together, just barely, but we can do it, we can actually come out the other side. That that does infuse everyone with this superpower to shape the course of history. It's yeah. energizing to recognize. And it can feel like a lot of pressure, but it can also feel like an enormous sense of of gratitude and, and joy and to be doing something that will matter will shape history that's written decades from now we're in that moment right now
1: this is i it. think we are ben. and the democracy if we if we win it won't be our parents or grandparents democracy it will be the first democracy ever that's truly sort of multiracial and multi-ethnic where all of us get to fully participate
2: that's exactly what it is. It's not just—it's not going back to some golden age that didn't exist. It's actually trying to achieve the the vision of Lincoln at Gettysburg, achieve the vision of the Declaration of Independence, something that's been observed in a breach and not in reality. We can build that, and what a privilege it is that that is actually in sight, even if it's far away. To be on that path and be able to do things that like keep us on that path and accelerate that path—it's a gift.
1: It sure is. So. Let's having having now climbed the heights. Let's go back down into the trench and the fight around the country. <clears throat> excuse me. I've seen um, uh, voter suppression efforts that target. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> this is from too much door to door work in a mayoral campaign. <clears throat> um, uh, that, that, that target um, college campuses. Right, that make it hard for college students to vote. That say, y- you're y- we won't let you use, you know, you need special voter ID, we won't take your college ID or something, so that you can't register anymore. Is that affecting, I don't know, all those students in Madison?
2: Well, in Madison, they now set up voter ID printing machines right by the polling places, and so University of Wisconsin Madison is. One of the highest turnout campuses of the country. Uh, I think it's in the top three for, for big public universities. Uh, but the, the situation is one where Republicans intentionally targeted student voting, young people voting, black people, Latinos, and people with disabilities and made it harder for them to vote. There was a, one of the Republicans involved in passing that law, the, the voter ID law. that Republicans were giddy when they saw an analysis that showed the effect it would have on on young voters and voters of color. And Mm -hmm. he then was so sick of it all that he resigned and started talking to the press. Mm -hmm. But it's no joke. I mean, this is the core of the Republican strategy, not to persuade people, but by stopping people from being able to vote so that they can win in these narrow-margin elections. The path out of this The biggest path out of this is to win the Supreme Court race, because if we have a state Supreme Court that believes in the laws in our state and the constitution of our state, uh, attempts to suppress the vote could actually be declared illegal uh, appropriately. Right now, the Supreme Court is an agent of voter suppression, but it should be on the side of democracy, the side of the rule of law. And that. Is what we can achieve if we win this. And it will take effect before the 2024 presidential race, Senate race, the House races, where Wisconsin could tip the balance on the House. I mean, the whole country's politics will be affected by what happens in the next 58 days.
1: So um, I want to put Ohio up there again as a caution and ask you about it. In Ohio, the Supreme Court, even though it had a Republican majority, declared their gerrymandered districts unconstitutional. The legislature and the governor used them anyway and forced their state residents to vote in these unconstitutional districts. Then they changed the laws about the court in order to change the court so maybe they can retroactively uh, okay these districts. I guess this also speaks to the enormous importance of keeping uh, the Republicans from a supermajority and keeping a Democratic governor. Thank
2: you enormous, enormously important. And the difference between Ohio and Wisconsin is that in Ohio, there are very specific guidelines for what the state Supreme Court can do in judicial races, excuse me, in, in legislative redistricting. But in Wisconsin, the court has enormous scope. It can demand new maps that meet certain criteria. It can appoint a special master to draw maps. It can you know, choose maps itself. It can ask for submissions and then select among the submissions. It's really up to the court what it wants to do. And... That, that means that this race, unlike in Ohio, it, there's not a clear path for Republicans to subvert the results. If they lose and if we have a Supreme Court that reflects common sense in the rule of law, then we really do have a, a direct path to being able to have uh, maps that would allow the, the public's will to be reflected in who has the majority in the state legislature. That's a, a huge no, opportunity. But... It means that we have not yet tipped into a, a, fully, a fully inescapable doom loop the way that Republicans have yep. tried to create one in Ohio.
1: Oh my gosh, though, Ben, you are so close. After so much fighting, you are so close to being able to like, put the genie back in the bottle.
2: That's exactly it. I mean, this is we're there's essentially a, a rip in <laughs> the fabric of our democracy that was, was ripped open in 2011 when Republicans chose the most aggressive gerrymandered maps in the country. And since then, they've, they've driven so much bad stuff through that rip. But this gives us a, a chance, at long last, after 12 years of fighting, to actually sew it shut and start to build a, a democracy that everyone deserves to grow up in. Uh, but but right now, you know, my son's 11. In his lifetime, Wisconsin has not been a real democracy. Yeah, this could change.
1: And, and 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 just let's remind everybody, because you and I talk politics all the time, that the consequences are not political. The consequences are are um, the kind of culture we live in. They're whether or not you're free to uh, make your own reproductive choices, whether or not you can pay for school. I mean, they, whether or not you can drive the length of the state without falling in a sinkhole, right? I mean, because be, the 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 governing um, consequences of the lack of democracy, the, the poorer results that come when people aren't held accountable by democracy are real for people.
2: That's right. No, it's life or death in a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, right now, there are families deciding that maybe they don't want to have their next kid in Wisconsin because if something goes wrong in their pregnancy, they might not be able to access basic reproductive health care. There are OBGYN clinics that are shutting down because doctors are terrified to practice in a state where they could be prosecuted. If someone has an Mm of pregnancy, the standard of care is, the term for it is abortion. And Wisconsin's operating under a law passed in 1849 before the advent of modern medicine. I mean, it's not, it it, it doesn't make any sense. This is going back 173 years, 174 years now. Um, So (laughs) this is very personal and very real for people. And I could go through a list of a hundred other ways that affects people's lives. But maybe for that reason, we have seen an, a level of engagement that's blown us away. The primary turnout on February 21st, it beat the previous record for February primary turnout by 34 percent. It's a jump of a third in terms of the number of, of voters that turned out. We don't know what the number is going to be in, in the April 4th general election. But there are people coming out of the woodwork in a, in a race that normally would be kind of a snooze fest state Supreme Court race in April of an odd-numbered year. I mean, that's not, no one's idea of the center of the political action. But at this moment, it's a whole different world. And going to bat, when you tell someone about it, they become a committed voter. It means that returns to every hour organizing are higher now than I've ever seen.
1: I'm really happy to hear that. Can I ask you a quirky question about February and April elections? I know that in Chicago, we have our mayoral primaries in February because the old democratic machine, also a a practitioner of voter suppression, knew that the weather would be so terrible, the only people who voted were the ones whose jobs depended on it the patronage workers. Why are your elections in February and April? I know why ours are.
2: So ours are sort of similar to that. It was actually the idea originally was the the Democratic and Republican parties saw that socialists were taking power in, in Milwaukee and so they wanted to schedule the elections to happen at a time when the, uh, you know, separate from the, the fall elections or wouldn't spill over and remove party labels. So people couldn't see who the socialist was. So our elections in the spring are nonpartisan rather than being partisan. And, you know, the kind of the gloss on it was that they were trying to break up the power of big city machines. But of course, as you say, if only the, pe- the only people who vote are the people for whom they're really paying attention and the stakes are very direct, it actually limits democracy, and you know, it can mean that yeah. a have seat may have a bigger impact. It's a kind of yeah. ridiculous system, but it's been this way for more than a century in Wisconsin because of that.
1: Yeah, I hear too. I mean, pe- people who don't live in the Upper Midwest don't really understand when we say our elections are in February what that means and how how committed voters have to be. To, I mean, I know we've made it easier to vote over several days, but it's still not a walk in the park sometimes.
2: No. No, this is. Uh, I mean, it's, these elections in Wisconsin have become so high stakes that they're now contested, really just like the fall elections. The grassroots and independent groups, the you know, the way the U line money is playing, the the role of the parties is really significant. It, it's just it does a disservice to voters to not be able to see on the ballot a, a shorthand for what the values of the of the candidates are, and the nope. candidates are. Pretty clear. I mean, the Republican candidate, Dan Kelly, in this race, was literally casting checks from the Republican Party while he was a candidate until December of 2022. So it's kind of laughable now that these are pretty clear. Yeah, it's pretty clear.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, I wonder your thoughts about this topic. I found that um, shows like mine are about national politics as they play out in particular places. where you are. But so many people now are are paying less attention to local politics. I find this in the mayor's race in Chicago. They get their news, you know, from cable news that focuses on the national battle between Democrats and Republicans, between uh, pro-democracy and anti-democracy forces. And, And there's something lost when people try and find out about local candidates. It's harder to get local candidates through and tell the story here, are you finding that in Wisconsin?
2: The collapse of local news, and massive layoffs. I mean, Gannett newspapers, which owns a ton of newspapers in Wisconsin, eliminated twenty percent of their journalism jobs last year alone. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. been a tragedy for for voters getting information, and it, in a, I mean, it means that folks like me at the Democratic Party, independent, special interest-funded groups uh, on the on the right, like these, like the lines and others. They play actually a bigger role in in becoming sources of news and information for people. Uh, We have a big email list. We ask people to donate, ask people to volunteer. But I wound up hearing from people that they often get political news from those political emails that they get. Well, if you've ever looked at Republican political emails, they are full of lies. I mean, it's it's an alarming state of affairs. It creates this alternate universe that people inhabit where up is down and left is right. So... There there really is a civic cost to the the hollowing out of news and the nationalization of news. Um, That's one reason why I've thought to make sure that the national media cover this as well. Because a lot of people in the council will find out about it from watching cable news or or looking at national news websites.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really important for news organizations, even if they focus on national news, to understand that national news plays out in specific places and tell those
2: stories. It really does. And I'm grateful that you're keying into this race or your listeners and your listeners in Wisconsin. But frankly, also in Chicago, if you think that your neighboring state should be a democracy, come on up to Wisconsin and knock on doors. We will put you to work. You'll be talking to Democrats who want to vote for someone who lines up with their values and just need to find out who that person is. Uh, This is a a great moment to, to help your neighbors to the north.
1: And look, we're going to have a mayoral primary Tuesday in this big city. And a good chunk of you who are listening are not going to have your candidate into the next round. Um, If you uh, decide that you've had it with Chicago for a moment, take that trip. Get up there and help. Um, Really, really so important. Um, Amen. Ben, um, I don't want to look ahead yet to a cycle after this, um, but I can't help it. Just tell us, Tammy Baldwin is up?
2: (laughs) Yes. Excuse me. So Tammy Baldwin is up in 2024. That is a critical must-win Senate race if we're going to hold the majority. And also because she's such a fantastic public servant, we'll, of course, be ground zero in the presidential race. So you can I mean, you can see the Republicans, they've announced their national conventions in Milwaukee. Their first debate will be in Wisconsin in the presidential primary. They're just making Wisconsin priorities one, two and three. Uh, We'll also be fighting because if we especially if we win the Supreme Court race, then uh, lawsuits that argue that our legislative maps are unconstitutional will get a fair shake. So we could have redistricting, and that could lead to two House seats being, uh, you know, ripe for potentially being flipped. Wisconsin is a fifty-fifty state with a six-eight, excuse me, six-two Republican delegation. Six out of eight congressional seats are in Republican yeah. hands. So we might be fighting for the House majority, the Senate majority, the White House, and. Dozens of state legislative seats it could become competitive if we had maps that actually prized democracy instead of walking in republican power. This yeah. is going to be a massive election cycle
1: yeah all all of those fights while you're fighting for democracy itself and even in some cases the rule of law it's a it's a and i'm I'm grateful I know that you um are time um Uh, limited today i'm so grateful that you spend the time with us Uh, keep the people who are listening to this show and online informed about the enormous importance of the battle that you're fighting in wisconsin but also the enormous joy of joining in and fighting it with you
2: well the 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 folks who are Pouring their blood, sweat, and tears into this thing, people who've been organizing for fair maps ever since 2011, people in unions who formerly were in unions, teachers who've seen their their livelihood dismissed and, and treated with disdain and contempt by Scott Walker and the Republicans. There's so many people for whom this is so personal, as well as you know any you know, women and anyone who loves someone who can have a child. I mean, the the, the list goes on and on. This is the moment. We've been on defense for years in Wisconsin. Now we're on offense. We could flip the majority in the court. We could actually open the path to real change, not just blocking what Republicans are trying to do, the terrible things they're trying to pass, but actually opening the door to to becoming a democracy. What an extraordinary moment.
1: Extraordinary moment, and extraordinary moments bring out extraordinary people, as um, anybody who's listened to you can tell. It's really, um, I think the whole country owes you a debt. I've said it before, but I think we all owe you a debt. Hang in there.
2: You're, you're much too kind, and the debt is owed to people knocking on doors in every corner of the state this weekend. Uh, but thank you so yep. much. I'm grateful for the yep. chance to join you, and thanks to, thanks to all your listeners for tuning into this.
1: You bet. Thanks, Ben. All right, we we're going to take a break and during that break, um I know there's going to be advertisement on helps pay for us, but you know what? You, you open your laptop, sign up, get a slot to help out um with, with Wisconsin Dems. Really an important thing to do and then we will be back in just a moment.
0: You're listening to the big picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, so um Ben is remarkable. The fight in Wisconsin is uh, epic and important, and reached the point where we can see over the edge. We're after a decade, a decade of being um, on retreat, democracy going backwards. Um, we, we've crawled our way back, and are uh, uh, and have a chance—a chance with your help to. Um, Really restore something important to America. So, um, please to help. Please, right, let me return to something that uh, I was talking about in the beginning, namely oversight. I think uh, in my opening remarks I, I mentioned Harry Truman's uh, really important job leading oversight in the Senate during World War II. You know, though, when he when he was picked for vice president. There were some changes, and the, and the oversight fell to <laughs> a guy from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy. And the era of paying attention to facts, using oversight to balance the power of the executive and, and uh, its purchasing and to help uh, build the arsenal of democracy faded and was replaced with conspiratorial BS. <clears throat> we're in a similar time. We're in a similar time. You know, uh, in, in the last round, we had real oversight. I mean, I just think about what happened to the Postal Service when Donald Trump was president. They were gutting it. They were getting rid of it. They were privatizing a bunch of it. It didn't work. And the oversight crowd helped save the U.S. Postal Service, right? Helped make government work better uh, and more efficiently, I might add, for taxpayers. It's one of hundreds of examples. Um the January 6th Committee is a kind of special oversight committee. And you can see what remarkable they work they did to tell a story Americans needed to hear. Um, but uh wow. Now we have Jim Comer uh in charge of the oversight committee with his uh pal uh and first mate Jim Jordan from Ohio. What a bunch. I, I Comer wants the government. He wants to use oversight to force the government, get this, to force the government, to get the government to force companies to stop filtering lies from the internet. Companies, according to Commerce, should be forced, forced to carry hateful, dishonest, anti-democratic, homophobic propaganda. And he pretends that companies who do not care and won't carry such vile and dangerous material are somehow violating the First Amendment. Don't listen to me. Listen to him. Um, Paul, let's play this.
3: I'm very concerned. I'm very upset that DirecTV does not have Newsmax on there. Uh, I've been in constant communication with the leadership at AT AT&T and DirecTV. Uh, I have strongly encouraged them uh, to meet with your CEO, Mr. Ruddy, to get this worked out or else. So uh, I think if, if anyone's ever watched the, uh, the House Oversight Committee, any of our first three hearings, uh, they have to ask themselves, do you really want to go in front of the House Oversight Committee?
1: Can you imagine? He's saying to Newsmax, a reporter on Newsmax, absolute propaganda nonsense, that um, they're not being carried by direct TV. So he's going to force this company, force this company, to carry uh, this hateful speech. They don't have to do it, right? And, and, and he's claiming, wrapping himself in things that you and I care about, the First Amendment. Really, what does this have to do with the First Amendment? The First Amendment, uh, as you know, says the government shall make no law to abridge, you know, free speech. That's not the same thing as saying the government shall force private entities to carry speech they find distasteful, I mean, I suppose if you can carry a private entity, force a company to do it, can you force individuals to do it? Am I going to have to open my mouth and and say things that I think are abhorrent because my neighbor says them and it's my job to repeat them, otherwise I'm somehow violating his first amendment? It makes no sense. They're using government, they're calling it oversight, but what they're really doing is using government to force a hateful agenda. On America and wrapping themselves up in the First Amendment. And this is hardly all. Uh, James Comer and Jim Jordan, they are pushing American culture to the breaking point. And this, of course, is their goal, right? Because while they're dividing people and pushing them into crazy places, Democrats, as you know, and we've talked about this, are doing the hard work of governing right? They're getting things done and making our lives better. And whether that is on big issues that most of you care about, like reproductive choice, or marriage equality, um, or voting rights, they're also doing it, you know, where the rubber meets the road, like in infrastructure, and in um, strengthening the institutions of democracy, and in uh, public education, all wherever you look, there's a governing agenda. And that. Um, and that, that's a real thing, right? But the Republicans don't have that. So what do they want in its place? They want chaos. They want people to be focused on their anxieties and their um, fears. And we've talked again so many times about this. If we get things done, if we work hard up against that, we make people's lives better, we begin to drain that swamp. If you build the kinds of community that you heard that – Ben is building to do political work, sure, but building these communities of practice in Wisconsin, it drains that bile. It makes people excited about being part of their communities. All of this builds a healthier and stronger America. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to get myself not to lose my temper sometimes when I hear these sort of crackpots on the right just drone on and on about, Whatever, as I say, the, the uh, real toads in the imaginary garden, whether it's a laptop of hunters or an email of Hillary's, whatever it is they want to talk about in this imaginary world of theirs. Um, I, I want to not lose my temper with them. I want to change the subject and say, okay, great. What's your vision for America? How are we going to get there? Right? Um, how should we think? How do you think about our country? And you know they may say uh, um, they, they may be forced into the consequences of their of their behavior and say, "Well, I'm just for a you know white American. Everybody else should leave." I actually don't think most people think that. I think some do, but I don't think most do. I think they don't know the consequences uh, of their own decision making because they've been so ginned up by the rhetoric about these little one-off things that they keep getting pointed at and haven't had time to see the big picture. So we should force them out of that hole. We should remind ourselves, ourselves, right? That our culture and our politics are not divisible. And if you haven't guessed yet, that's been the theme of this whole show. In America, we fight hard our political battles. We do. And I do. But they're tied to the, they're tied to who we are and the culture of who we are. And look, we campaign on issues. And Democrats do it more than, than Republicans ever did. We pick the set of issues we want to talk about. But everybody knows that when you get elected, something could happen that has nothing to, that you never anticipated. I'm thinking of all those people who were elected before COVID. They had no idea COVID was coming. The ones who were successful um, um, you know, understood this was about our culture and about who we are. Um, as well as about science and and how to deal with public health, right? We have to we have to always pay attention to American culture. That's why I started by talking about, you know, going to the ballet or going to a concert at, at this new music venue in Chicago, because really, truly, how people come together, what they do together, how they think about each other, and the society therein, our politics always follows, always follows, and always reflects who we are. And here's the thing. Sometimes we change who we think we are, right? Sometimes it takes a long time to get there. Sometimes it happens almost in an instant. When Lincoln stood at Gettysburg, he talked about America in a new way. Now, this horrible war, the Civil War, had prepared the country for... It killed the old way and they didn't know what the new way was. He gave it a voice. He gave it an image. He gave it an idea of why we were a country, right? We're in a similar time. We're not in a civil war, but the old ideas, they don't hold anymore. And culturally they don't hold. That's why a big chunk of America is insane to say, well, we have to go back to some imagined way, right? But in 1967, which is, you know, admittedly not yesterday, but it's it's within the lifespan of most Americans. If you were black in America, you could not legally vote in a presidential election in many states. Right, that only happened. Nineteen sixty-eight was the first time that happened. So the changes that we're making um, have taken a long time, and we are on the verge, as you heard in uh, in uh, Wisconsin, of pushing back the attempts to stop us from becoming this multiracial culture, this multiracial democracy that we are, that by numbers is what we are becoming. Um, and I think it's a beautiful thing. We could be the first real multiracial, real democracy the world has ever had and stable, but we have to fight this rear guard retrograde nonsense, nonsense that we get Every time. Right. And the nonsense is, as I said, coming from the house Republicans, whose goal it is to find, I mean, it's a really interesting ecosystem to find bits and pieces that then the communicators and, and Fox cable, you know, the Tucker and gangs can weave into a fiction that's compelling for Americans. That's after all, why, uh, the right wing demanded, and uh, Speaker McCarthy caved and gave Tucker all the footage of January 6th, right? Leaving aside the potential threat of them exposing all the security apparatus that's in that video that really we were careful not to do before, you've given all of that to a propagandist for the purpose of putting together a dishonest narrative to gin people up to create a culture, a culture that will not let us move forward. Because if we don't move forward, the democracy falls and they can put something else in place, which, you know, they're doing in Florida. They have all, they have been doing in Wisconsin and, and folks have pushed back. They had been doing in Michigan and folks have pushed back. Good people will push back, but we have to give them enough context. We have to not just fight the politics, but step aside while we're doing it and ask them, what kind of a country do you want? What kind of a country do you want to be? How are we going to get there? Who are we going to benefit? Everybody or somebody? Right? And we're just going to do this so that a handful of people can get even wealthier as opposed to almost everybody else. Or are we going to say we love it when people get wealthy, but we have to lift everyone else up at the same time? These are really interesting questions about our culture. If we ask them correctly, we're going to take some of the venom off of uh out of the right okay i have now um uh rambled a little bit but i thought it was important to get that off my chest we're going to take a break for the news and when we come back the remarkable mark maxwell will join us stay tuned
0: you're listening to the big picture with edwin eisentraft on wcpt 820
1: Okay, everybody, uh, welcome back in this mid-afternoon in the weekend before the mayoral election here in Chicago. I'm joined by Mark Maxwell, who is, you know, you guys know him, but he's quickly becoming like the go-to reporter for anyone around the country who wants to understand politics in the Midwest. He currently hangs his hat at KSDK in St. Louis. Uh, Mark, welcome back.
4: Hi, Edwin. Uh, thanks for having me. Always good to be with you.
1: I know you have your teeth in a, in a fabulous story, and I want to get to that in a second. But before we do that, you are you just you're such a smart and careful observer of politics that I wanna um I, I kind of want to ask you um I'm seeing here in Chicago's mayor's race where we do have good journalism. I mean, journalism around the country, local journalism has collapsed, but there's still very good local journalism in Chicago. And yet this is a different kind of mayor's race than I'm used to with people not being able to decide late into a race. And maybe it's because the candidates don't have as much money as the former candidates did in previous races. But I also think the nationalization of news has meant that people know less about what's going on in their local communities. Um, and that has the, the, I have some warning signs flashing for me in that. And I'm wondering if you see that in St. Louis, where I know that you have good reporting and what you think
4: about that. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question before the FCC. That's an interesting question before Congress. Uh, there's, there's a lot of interest in localism in news. And the consolidation of the, you know, we'll call them big media. Now, I would draw a big sharp line between big media corporations and big tech, which are direct competitors. Often, sometimes they, uh, big tech, you know, boosts content or boost viewership toward big media. But by and large, big tech has been a disruptor. Um, but to, to answer your question, yes, there's there's increasing interest. In big media companies, stacking up all their chips in one direction and saying, let's go top down. Um, let's go D.C. outward to the Midwest and feed our news from Congress to, uh, to St. Louis or to you know, pick your spot. I'll, I'll give you an example. We might have discussed this once before, but uh, people have sometimes asked me, hey, why don't you go to D.C. And, and cover politics from there? And I always point to this one picture. I think it was from Politico. Back during the Build Back better debate. And some photographer had gotten a bird's eye view vantage point over this large patio, this walking space between two of the federal buildings near Capitol Hill. And everybody in the country was wondering, will Joe Manchin vote thumbs up or thumbs down? And so you could see from this bird's eye view, this massive gap of like a 100 reporters with their microphones and their cameras and their TV cameras all circling this one senator from a coal state wondering how's he going to vote and to me that picture just really encapsulated sort of the the priorities of media we, we every one of those reporters has a hometown where news important news is overlooked underreported and yet everybody's staring to dc to see are they going to save us are they going to bail us out um and yeah that i mean if politics is supposed to be local and and these days it's increasingly national uh, that we need local reporting, and that's that's a big part of it. And I, it's a public policy question. It's tough for, I think, members of Congress to tackle. It's tough for regulators to tackle. Um, but so far, without anybody tackling it, the markets have kind of just done their thing, and uh, we've seen how that's shaken out.
1: Yeah, I, I, and where we do, even here, we have good local reporting, but people's attention has moved, and I think that's a shame. I mean, I, you know, this is a uh, – show about national politics but i do it through local lenses because like you i believe it all this stuff happens in places and and that's where people can make the difference
4: so i I attribute a lot of that to big tech um i I think that big tech has built the information pipelines to focus our attention at dc and the stuff that we can look at and sort of scoff at from a distance without lifting a finger to do much work in our own backyard it's easy to have an opinion or type a comment Mm -hmm. in in the comment section It's hard to get out and and meet your neighbors and go to the PTO meeting or go to the neighborhood association meeting and make change around you.
1: That's really interesting. Um, So, you know, in the course of the next year, we'll talk more about sort of what we do about it and how we can um, reinvigorate our sense of place in America and our sense of our own agency to make the world a better place. I uh, think it's just phenomenally important. Okay, let's, let's turn to news. Um, uh, and th- I, some of my listeners are not going to be amused with me for this, Mark, but there's an important conversation going on. Uh, I think the, the conversation part mostly among Democrats around law enforcement. Um, I mean, the Republicans are, are lobbing stuff in, but it's really Democrat-Democrat disagreement here. Um, and it exploded in St. Louis this week uh, with your circuit attorney, uh, who's Kim Gardner. And I, she held a press conference that went, oh, my gosh, so astray. Do you want to tell everybody that story, what happened and how it's developing?
4: Well, sure. Just, for folks who may not be familiar with Kim Gardner, right out, out of the gate, she's been the chief prosecutor. Uh, she's the Kim Fox of St. Louis, uh, in, in St. Louis. And she took on Eric Wrightons early on, and she was sort of a liberal hero in the progressive wing for what she had done there, um, and really um, had a lot of strong support in the black progressive base around St. Louis. Um, that's who she is. This last weekend, uh, the, one week ago, on Saturday night, a 17-year-old girl a volleyball player on a uh, in town from Tennessee with her family was competing at the, at the, the dome where the Rams used to play. And she was walking home to her hotel with her parents when a car came careening through at a high rate of speed, didn't break, didn't yield, crashed into some other cars and pinned her, uh, in a mangled mess. And her dad who had military experience, uh, put on two tourniquets around her legs, probably saved her life, but she uh, would have to have both legs amputated in surgery in the next few hours. It was just a tragic situation. Um, shocking details. When we learned that, and I mean, people's hearts were breaking all over the city and around the country. And then we started learning more about who was behind the wheel. 21 year old Daniel Riley was facing armed robbery charges two years ago uh, for, uh, for an alleged armed robbery uh, of another young man in the area. And but then we learned Riley was out on bond uh, several times, so he still hadn't had his trial yet. He was out on bond despite 91 total uh, violations of his house arrest uh, conditions and his, and his term of conditions that he was supposed to be on. And some of those were because of a dead battery in his ankle bracelet or other items. But people started learning that and they said, "Wait a minute, why was this guy not in jail?" We went and looked at the court records, and there was not one public record of a motion being filed by Kim Gardner's office to revoke his bond. Back up farther, and why hadn't this trial happened? So if, if, the, if the prosecutor revokes his bond, he goes to jail and waits for his trial. But if the prosecutor secures a conviction, he could go to prison. That could have also happened, but King Gardner's office uh, somehow, inexplicably, had mistaken the victim in the armed robbery case for a dead guy. And they thought, well, we don't have a victim in this case, so I guess we can't go to trial. We're not really ready. We talked to the victim's father on Wednesday who told us, oh, no, my son is still very much alive. He's playing basketball right now. I don't know how the circuit attorney messed this up, but we were pushing to take this to trial to have this armed robbery suspect imprisoned. Uh, We didn't want to see a plea deal. We wanted to see him guilty and and put in jail, and that never happened. So there were at least two scenarios where things fell apart. Um, Kim Gardner held a press conference Thursday. Um, Tuesday night, she put out a very defensive statement and blamed other people for twisting the facts to try and uh, be selfish, she said, and basically throw her under the bus. Uh, Tashara Jones, the city's first uh, black woman mayor, came out and said, look, she needs to be accountable. Kim Gardner needs to be accountable. She needs to do some soul-searching to decide if she wants to stay in the job. That was a longtime political ally of hers who came out and said, Kim Gardner needs to step up and own this. And, and really, so far, all she's done is just Uh, defend herself. She made one comment on Thursday that said, could our office have done more? Yes. But she stopped there. She didn't give specifics. She didn't open her office for an investigation. She didn't promise to do better. She didn't point out who was accountable. And and so I think a lot of progressives who've already felt sort of under the microscope for this sort of soft on crime narrative felt a lot of that uh, simmering tension just bubble up and boil over this week into really an outrage. Um, and, and you're right. Republicans are playing politics in some of it, um, and they're also calling for accountability. Missouri's brand-new attorney general, a Republican appointed by the governor, uh, came in and tried to kick Kim Gardner out of office. He started a legal proceeding that's really quite rare. Um, he yeah. could ultimately go to, in court and decide if she stays in the job or not.
1: Yeah, I sort of feel like the Republicans, though are a. An audience, if you will, I certainly felt like a Shakespearean audience. They get to boo and participate and throw things. But this is a fight um, that Democrats are having. Uh, you know, I know Republicans like to think all Democrats are like Kim Gardner, but in fact, Democrats are having a, a really interesting debate amongst themselves about how, you know, how to where and how to draw the lines to do fair and honest. Um, and effective uh, uh, public safety work. It's an interesting debate,
4: right? Right. And, and for example, um, some of the rhetoric starts to confuse things, and we, we see that in politics everywhere. But Cory Bush, uh, Congressman Cory Bush, a progressive from the far left in Congress, who represents the first district of Missouri, much of St. Louis, uh, if not all of it. Uh, she came out and said, look, there's failures everywhere in the criminal justice system. And those Republicans in Jefferson City, they just want to continue their carceral strategies that put people behind bars and continue uh, you know, patterns of violence. And I'm paraphrasing some of her there, but she basically she just said, uh, we're not going to give them the keys to the car here. Um, and she gave a little bit of political cover to Kim Gardner, but she also said, look, I mean, people need to be accountable here. This was a tragedy and there are other tragedies like it. And and I think that's. That sort of strikes the, 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 the heart of the, the matter, right? Is that you don't have to believe that mass incarceration works to also believe that victims of violence deserve swift justice.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and uh, nobody, I, well, very few people, I, and nobody I really know who, who's an um, opponent of mass incarceration says there should be no incarceration. Right. I mean, people who are violent and dangerous um, should be put on trial and held accountable for and and put, you know, set aside until they can be less violent and less dangerous for the rest of us. Well, well, example
4: at the big unraveling in Illinois right now. Where did Illinois draw that big line? They said, we're not going to throw people in in jail before their trial uh, if they can't pay their bond, if it's a nonviolent crime or a property crime. But if they hurt someone, if it's violent then they're going to go to jail before the trial without bond. It's getting harder on the violent crimes and softer on the softer crimes. That's the direction of a lot of people that want to, you know, reduce harm.
1: Yeah. And and it's interesting. I mean, um, then there's the, that that leaves room to throw the bombs that says, well, you're not putting anybody uh, because you, because you don't have cash bail. It means you have no way of holding somebody before a trial, which is of course nonsense, but that's, but, but that's what you hear. And that's why these issues are complicated.
4: I think and the rhetoric, really, this just, just really feeds into a lot of the stereotypical red versus blue, you know, soft on crime versus tough on crime narratives. When you have a, you know, Republicans are trying to speak for kindergartner's intent, right? They're pointing at a number of very obvious and embarrassing blunders in her office about confusing people and missing trial dates and not being ready for trial. And they're saying, oh, that was on purpose. That was willful. That was intentional. She believes that this person shouldn't have gone to jail. Therefore, and and it's really hard to know what's true there because her office is overwhelmed. COVID did have a backlog at the circuit courts. Other cities are handling it much better than St. Louis has. She, She has seen a mass exodus of staffers there. So there's a question about does she believe in the justice system or does she just not believe in the way the justice system has worked for decades and she wants to change it? She yeah.
1: Or she's just not competent to do it either. I mean, it goes to there are all kinds of questions, right? Uh, but it's also an explosive story that can be used to support every version of narrative. Hence, I believe it's going to be national news before the week is out.
4: Oh, and there's already, and and that's the thing. You, you're already seeing some of the right wing, you know, news outlets like Fox News pick it up, and and they're making the case that she's just too soft on crime, and, and that's the that's the political narrative that furthers, you know just divisions that already exist. The facts are that there were actual errors made that could be improved. There's actual ways to improve public safety in the system we have and in the system that we want. If everybody just does their job. Now I should mention there was a judge involved here too, that apparently was asked orally to revoke bond and without any record in the public record, I guess he rejected it. That's what the defense attorney and the prosecutor both claim The judge really hasn't spoken for himself yet and may be called to testify in these Kim Gardner hearings, which those hearings themselves will be fit for TV, right? Tailor made for national audience to watch as a liberal big city prosecutor basically goes on trial to save her job. And the the prosecutor here will be the attorney general uh, who was Governor Parsons' government attorney, attorney like six weeks ago.
1: Yeah, well, uh this is going to be a moment for you because the whole country is going to want to watch us because it's, you know, it's a gigantic mess right along the fault lines. And um, so I, I think we're lucky that you're going to be part of, I hope, part of telling that story to America.
4: Yeah, and, and just one point about it, too, is that everybody's knee-jerk reaction is to dig in, go to their political trenches, and just galvanize our pre-existing disagreements. But I just came back from Detroit for a week where we went and saw how they're building their, their turnaround story in Detroit. And there's incredible, I've actually never seen anything like it. And I know I just parachuted in, maybe there's uh, examples to the contrary. But almost everything I saw was just complete political alignment between the powers that be. Everybody was pulling in the same direction to make Detroit a better city, a smart, smarter city, safer city, a wealthier city. And I, I was blown away. I've heard I've heard talking points from politicians for so long about, uh, well, let's have collaboration, everybody deserves a seat at the table, and all these tired talking points that we all just kind of roll our eyes at in the speech. Well, at the point, they're actually doing it. And, and nobody seems to be staking out their own turf and fighting for their own self-preservation. Everybody seems to agree, hey, this city is worth saving. we got to do something about it. And when you have that, you can actually see real results. I think that's the missed opportunity here in St. Louis, is that, Instead of trying to get everybody on board and saying, all right, you know what, we screwed this one up bad and we feel terrible about it, there does seem to be that knee jerk, let's dig in and just defend ourselves at all costs. And where's the public interest in that?
1: Yeah, it's not. In, in Detroit, it's a really interesting case, and maybe I should schedule time just to have a conversation about what's going on in Detroit. But one of the reasons I think that they have overcome some of the political side taking that happens everywhere else is that the private and philanthropic sectors have also decided to be partners and have made um collaboration the um uh the the cost of the it's like if you're if you're going to keep fighting the way you have we're not going to come in with our money and our talent and our time and try and help but if you'd set aside those fights we're going to be at the table with you so it's it's, it's both bipartisan, but it's also um, government and private sector.
4: That's a really great point. And I think it was beyond just setting aside political squabbles. Um, so we talked to some of the folks who are behind Michigan Central, like the grand, you know, the, the union station, basically, of the truck, yeah. where yeah. Ford is going to have a big investment there. And those those CEOs told us, well, we wanted to see the city take the steps first. We, we wanted to see the city do the small stuff, put up more streetlights, start arresting people that are committing violent crimes. Just get a better close rate, get better surveillance, make the city like, take those first few steps that government is supposed to take and then let then we'll feel like there's momentum and then we'll buy in. So I think the, the, the philanthropic community is definitely making a huge difference in Detroit, but they were not as quick to, to jump in until they saw city leaders doing their part first.
1: Yeah, right. They made it the price of admission and and it, and it made a difference. Um, and I think, you know what, I think there are a lot of, there's an awful lot in the private sector in my beloved city of Chicago that has an eye on the mayor's race we're in the middle of to see um, what the next administration does. And if they're serious about bringing people together to do the work the government needs to do, um, and then, then, then they have a lot they can do as well.
4: I can only watch from a distance and read some of the good reporting from the, the local journalists there, see some of it on Twitter. I mean, are people buying the Paul Vallis excuse that he, uh, his Twitter account was hacked and that that's the reason why he was liking some pretty controversial <laughs> racist I kind mean, of pe- Did he ever announce his account was hacked? I mean, was there ever a prior acknowledgment of this hack before all of a sudden it gets him in trouble?
1: Uh No. Um, and I, I want to. I, I made a promise to my listeners that I won't go into detail too much on the Chicago mayor's race because, Mark, I'm very involved in it with one of the candidates, um, and it's not Paul. So, right. So, I I, I feel like I don't want to use this airtime to dump on them. But but to answer your well, question,
4: I did not know about that prior engagement. I just I see these things online. Right. I'm like, it's it's, it's incredulous.
1: Right. But to, to answer your question, no, there was, this was, This was the new story. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you, 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 um, you have some observations that might tie a former governor of Illinois and a current governor of Florida. Talk about education a little bit because there's such, that, that's also such a hot topic.
4: Right. A lot of people are watching for Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, to possibly announce a run for the presidency. A lot of things seem to be pointing in that direction. He just made a big visit to Chicago a week or two ago. Um, but if you watch what he's doing in, in in Florida, he's using his post as governor to really censor academic freedom. And this is not hyperbole. Uh, you're not exaggerating. You look at the bill uh, that, that, that Governor DeSantis is espousing there it would actually ban the use of any state expenditure or any state funds to explore issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It goes beyond that to other things like mentioning critical race theory in the hiring process or anything like that. But it's basically saying that academics can't get into diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it kind of raised a a interesting scenario in my mind, because one of the big money Republicans who really likes Ron DeSantis, who might very well support him, is former Governor Bruce Rauner. And that just struck a bell with me because I was thinking, wait a minute, isn't that the same governor who stirred up a chocolate uh, milkshake uh, or a, a chocolate milk and toasted to diversity and said, yay, diversity tastes good. And he did this in 2018, right, as he was in the heat of battle with J.B. Pritzker and he was at the Hyatt Hotels in Chicago and saying, we've got to have more uh, – hires uh, with people of color in big corporate job posts. And so this hired executive stirred up chocolate syrup in a big uh, glass of milk and said, you, gotta, you can't let the people of color work at the bottom positions. You've got to have them all through the whole company. And Bruce Rauner went along with it and raised this big glass and sipped it and said, diversity tastes good. So I asked Governor Rauner recently, I said, hey, wait a minute, how can you support this guy DeSantis? Uh, he's cracking down on diversity in higher ed. I thought you said diversity tastes good. He hasn't responded yet.
1: You won't get a response, as be my bet. Um, the, the, I, let, let's talk about DeSantis for a minute. He's he's created a brand that, um, that plays off of a Republican themes, right? Um, and, and they are grievance and cruelty um, and fear of people who are different. Um, he's playing to a base. Um, I don't understand the... Many wealthy Illinois, uh, uh, former residents who moved to Florida because, largely because they don't have a state income tax, um, and, but it's February, I'll be honest, maybe for the weather too, um, uh, and can support a politics that's so fundamentally different than they were part of here. I mean, Illinois' Republican governors, when we had them, um, uh, even Rauner wasn't like DeSantis, and before him, I mean, the, the, the governors Edgar and and, and even the crook George Ryan, they didn't practice that kind of politics.
4: Well, there there seem to be two faces of Ron DeSantis in Florida. Um, and he, keep in mind, he was a former member of the House Freedom Caucus way back. I think he came to Congress around the same time as Jim Jordan, back in maybe twenty twelve, somewhere around there. Um, and then he went back and became the governor and. The way he built his political support in Florida was by protecting uh, water quality from pollution, from algae blooms and sugar runoff and a lot of the, and just basic services. And when na- natural disasters would occur, he was swift to respond and just showing effort everywhere to deliver go- basic government services as quickly and rapidly as possible. So he built his base in Florida that way. He's trying to build a national base the other way. Not by showing the things you can deliver from government, but by putting on the biggest political theater that you can and using your position to attack your political opponents and crack down on the exploration of ideas in college or firing a prosecutor who doesn't use their prosecutorial discretion the way you'd like them to on matters related to abortion or immigration.
1: or, or, Or banning books and firing teachers for complaining about banned books. Right. All of
4: that. It's, it's, it shouldn't be political, and, and this, this is one of those things where a lot of journalists want to tiptoe away from these ideas, but it's, it's not a partisan position to point to the founding documents of this country and to point to prominent Republican presidents, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, who would have, or even Reagan, who would have scoffed at these notions um, of, of cracking down on academic freedom. Even Reagan might have uh, uh, disagreed with some of those ideas. But he would have supported the idea to 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 explore them and discuss them and debate them. Uh, here is a state sponsored censorship of academic liberty, and that is not consistent with the conservative movement that I've I've ever known. It's something totally new, and I think it's on reporters to point that out.
1: Well, it's on reporters to, and, and this is hard for all of of you. I'm not a journalist, but you. Every time there is state-sanctioned censorship, um, the, the people who are doing it are saying, this is in furtherance of the First Amendment. This is in furtherance of people's right to free speech. It's... I don't know. You know, I don't want to say Orwellian it's backwards. It makes no sense. Before you were on, I, I played a uh, James Comer clip where he's on Newsmax and he's telling the folks in Newsmax, he's going to use the oversight committee to force um, direct TV to carry Newsmax. And that's a first amendment issue. Really? Really? Like some like they got to carry that. speech. They find hateful and you're ordering them
4: to do it. At the same time, the Supreme Court is looking at whether or not YouTube's algorithms, so big tech algorithms, prominently placed hateful messages uh, from ISIS before yeah. viewers. And, and so, look, these are, these are big discussions, but if you're going to say, wait a minute, we shouldn't be platforming hate speech, but also we're going to use the levers of government to force networks, private companies to carry content they disagree with, you're violating that <laughs> company's right of first uh, – a uh, first member right of – free association
1: in every way. Yeah. It's crazy. You have a huge job to ferret out the really um, subtle and difficult problems of governing during a time of political rage. That's not easy, Mark. I, I got to say it's not easy.
4: Well, I hope everybody uh, gets some sunshine on a, what, what is for us a beautiful Saturday and finds uh, <laughs> ways to enjoy some slice of sanity in the in the crazy political world.
1: Well, here in Chicago, they're out going door-to-door for a mayor's race. So um, uh, in, in, after the election, we can talk about that some more.
4: All right, looking forward to it.
1: All right, thank you so much for your time, as always. Take care.
4: Thanks, everyone. Good to, talk to you. All
1: right, everybody, that was uh, Mark Maxwell. As as you know, a really smart and, and thoughtful reporter from KSDK in St. Louis, covers Illinois Missouri, and Missouri and some national issues we're going to take a break and then when we come back I'm going to focus even more on education with you stay tuned
0: you're listening to the big picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820 okay
1: okay I think we're back um, good so I want to turn more to education we've talked about it a bit Um, Beth Lewis is a mom, a public education advocate, a K-12 policy expert. She fights for, you know what, a full and equitably funded school uh, in Arizona, right, which is where she's from. She's taking up this fight in Arizona, and she directs something called Save Our Kids Arizona. This brings parents, uh, educators, elected officials, business leaders, community members um, uh, all together in support of Arizona's public schools, uh, you know, with the f- crazy thought that, you know, strengthening public schools and building community around them is actually good for the state. Beth, welcome.
5: Hi, Edwin. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, I, I'm thrilled you're here. I, we, You know, you're talking to the cold upper Midwest here, and we, we do spend some time talking about Arizona because it's so – Interesting um, from the perspective of what's going on in our democracy. Um, and, and I uh, wanted to talk to you about the schools down there because what you have been engaged in is happening in states around the country. So first, tell us about Save Our Schools, and then let's get to some of the conversation around the policy questions around sc- what's called school choice.
5: Sure, yeah. Um, so Save Our Schools Arizona uh, was founded by me and some other uh, moms with no political experience in 2017, we um, were down at the Capitol and realized that as our lawmakers were defending public education, they were also forcing through universal vouchers. So we got that put on the ballot in 2018, Arizona voters overwhelmingly rejected these vouchers. And then we had to go back to the Capitol every year to fight more and more expansions of the program Um, that were less than universal, but, you know, huge. And um, last year, as you all know, we became the first uh, state in the nation to pass universal vouchers. And now, like you alluded to, they're popping up everywhere. And they're using Arizona as this, like, shiny example. But unfortunately, the realities of the program make us uh, more of a cautionary tale than a shiny example.
6: Well,
1: okay, so there are a couple things I want to dig into. Um one sort of on the plus side, which is that you are um, an example, but there are examples like this all over the country where one person with an idea in this democracy can still say to her friends, hey, let's get organized and let's try and make a difference and and can be successful in doing it. And I, I just um, in awe of that about the people who do it and about us as a country, that that is a thing that happens.
5: Yeah, it's really, it's, it's been the honor of my life to be a part of this movement and um, you know, we may have lost some battles this last year, but we are not going anywhere and we are not stopping the fight until we have quality public schools for every Arizona kid.
1: Okay. So let's have this conversation. Um, because it's, it, it's happening even here in Illinois, I'm going to say to you, why shouldn't parents just have the choice of where to send their kid? What could possibly be fairer than to say to every parent, look, we know schools aren't all great everywhere. I mean, public schools, some are better than others, and some private schools may even be better than your public schools. You don't have to be trapped. Take this money, go wherever you want, get the best education you can for your kid.
5: Sure. So I think what we're seeing play out here is that, you know, the people that were supposed to benefit, right, they were touted as the beneficiaries of this program were low-income families and kids who needed to leave, quote-unquote, failing schools. And that is not what's happening. Uh, The vouchers are going to wealthy families. They're going to people that had already chosen private school and homeschool, 80% of the ones that have been claimed so far. Uh, The kids have never been in public school. And what we're also seeing is this wild corporatization of, you know, all of these little private schools with no accreditation popping up in strip malls and, you know, behind churches and hiring teachers with no fingerprinting and no background checks and no safety standards. And then we've got all of these like homeschool co-ops that are popping up. And again, they're hiring tutors with, just a high school diploma came out this week, and um, there's zero taxpayer oversight for any of this. In Arizona, we have no academic accountability, so these kids don't take tests. We have no idea what they're learning. Um, we have no idea whether they're learning, and, you know, the last piece, and we've seen research all around the country that shows that vouchers are actually really harmful to students' academic achievement. Um so right now, I mean, it's just sort of the wild, wild west here. It's this major cash grab. They projected $33 million um, would be siphoned away from our general fund this year. And that number has already been revised upward to $300 million. So it's a it's
1: 10, ten, tenfold, tenfold increase, right?
5: Yep. Yeah. And
1: that money now, I mean, look, whenever you have $300 million at stake, you got a lot of people who are going to say, hey, I can set up a school. Right, and raise their hand and take that money. We saw this in Ohio, um, and it's one of the biggest scandals they've ever had. A guy uh, created a company in a bar on a napkin, made the waitress the CEO, and they became a big charter school company that took a bunch of state money before, uh, and everybody ended up indicted.
5: Right, exactly, and there's nothing in statute that would prevent a bad apple from opening up a strip mall school, taking in a bunch of kids, taking in the tuition money, and then closing shop in the middle of the night and walking away with the money. There's no mechanism to get that money back. And I think anytime you open up a program like this with hundreds of millions of dollars and zero guardrails, you are asking for fraud and abuse. And I have to point out, those are dollars that are supposed to go to our local public schools. It is a direct robbery from our 1 million kids that are choosing public schools. And the legislature set it up as such. They lied through their teeth. They told the Arizona people that you know money is just following the child it's not true and they knew it the money is not following the child and they also lied and said that there would be a percentage of money that stays in the local public school and that is absolutely unequivocally false
1: i i don't understand and you have to help me um, because i was a public school teacher at the beginning of my life i spent Five and a half years as a Chicago public school teacher before going on to do other things, and I don't understand the point of view of a, pub, of a political party that wants not to improve public education but to destroy it. I don't, I don't get that. What's their thinking, really?
5: I, I've, you know, I've researched this a lot. I've thought about it a lot. I think that we're really seeing three different motivations at play here, which really come with three different sets of special interests. All of them have very deep pockets, and they figured out how to work together. So you've got the folks that are really um, in it for religious evangelism, right? So the Betsy, the of the world, she's gone on record, and has I said, she wants vouchers for all to advance God's kingdom. Well, she's got a ton of money. Then you've got sort of like the, the libertarian folks who really just want the undoing of the public system, as it were, right? They think that taxation is theft. They they don't really believe in the America that you and I believe in. Um, And they have some very powerful special interests. And then you've got the folks that are just profiteers, (laughs) like looking at this as a multi, multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry, and they want to take it over and make as much money off of our kids as they possibly can. And they think, well, you know, they have different ends, goals, right? Different ends. It justifies the means. They bound together their strange bedfellows and they fight like heck to pass these anywhere they can. And Arizona just happens to be, you know, a really good Petri dish for them because we have such a libertarian bent in our sort of mavericky morale, right? And we also have um, just, you know, a very interesting populace that's, sort of open to these like new ideas. But I think what Arizona voters are seeing is that what sounded good on paper is a horrible, horrible idea that's set that to bankrupt bankrupt our state.
1: Um, you have a new governor. What's her view on this?
5: So Governor Hobbs has come out um, very clear she had, in her state of the state, so her very first speech you know, as governor, she said that she would like to roll back the universal program. That means that she would you know, keep enshrined in the law of the previous program that served um, students with special needs and prioritized kids in, in special circumstances. So that was about 11,000 students and you know they were getting what they needed our state has abdicated its duty to fully fund all of our kids but especially special education for so long that you know it's an understandable situation um so she wants to prioritize those kids and she wants to ro- roll back the entire universal expansion that went into effect in late september
1: and what are the prospects of being able to do that
5: so, we have a legislature that um, is not in favor of that. <laughs> we we have razor-thin margins uh, by one seat in the House and one seat in the Senate. It is Republican-controlled, but, you know, that's different than a Republican-controlled legislature in a Midwestern state. Um, in the Midwest, and, and I know that this has flipped away a bit in, in the last few years, but in the Midwest, there are so many Republican lawmakers who really fully support public schools. Unfortunately, here, you know, the way that these many special interests play in the primaries, we, we have these extremists that are running the legislature. They're not your bread and butter mccain principled conservatives right, that support public schools and the public good. We have a whole host of people who were there on January 6th and our election deniers and, you know, all of those things. They're MAGA Trumpers and they're running our state. So they're not in favor of it, but they're going to have to figure out how to work in a bipartisan manner with Governor Hobbs, because otherwise they're not going to be able to pass the budget that she won't veto. And they're going to shut down the state. <sighs>
1: I guess extremists like shutting things down. I mean, I, so let's go back to the, the, this coalition that is supportive of this. There's a really interesting case, I think, coming out of Oklahoma, where the Catholic Church um, has proposed, has applied for a charter school, right? Um, mm-hmm. And they want to get the public, they, they want basically, this is a move that will be litigated the rest of my natural life. But if they're successful, we'll, we'll then say the money that, that was assigned for public school can now support religious schools and mm-hmm. will now support religious schools. And the right has, has long wanted that. Um, I, I think it goes against uh, the Establishment of Religion Clause, but it's just me. That's, that's one Wait, thing. And it
5: I mean, vouchers were litigated um, up to the Arizona Supreme Court in 2009 um, when the very first voucher program was passed in Arizona. And the courts found that the original, you know, straight voucher program that gave public dollars directly to private schools was unconstitutional. And so the Goldwater Institute and the Institute for Justice and all of, you know, the DeVos. American Federation for Children came together and said, all right, well, what if we do a workaround and we pass an ESA, an empowerment scholarship account, and we'll just give the money to the parents? We're not giving the money to directly to the school. And the courts approved that. Um, mm-hmm. the, the architect of the vouchers was Clint Bullock, who is now uh, on our Supreme Court. Um, we have a very stacked court here. Um so I guess my point there is that, you know, we have so many charter schools, but here in Arizona, none of those charter schools are religious. Some of them are sort of pseudo-sponsored by churches and go right up to a line. Um, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that litigation, you know, proceeds.
3: But well, it here in Illinois, the, the
1: workaround for religious education was neither of those things, but it was a tax credit for parents mm-hmm. on tuition.
5: Have those too. Yeah, we give two hundred fifty million dollars away every year to those as well in Arizona, but that wasn't enough. Uh, so they had wow,
1: them. it's only seventy five here in Illinois.
5: Mhm.
1: So well, you give two hundred fifty million 40, dollars in tax credits for parents to pay tuition wherever they want to go. And now you're giving direct yeah, that's, support.
5: That's the grand total. Mhm. We mm-hmm. um, we've had them since 1998, so it's you know it's grown over 25 years. And every single year at the legislature, you'll see three, four five bills that try to, um, you know, expand the different parts of the program every single year. And in our state, uh, we have companies that process these and the tax credits and they uh, they make 10%. So they make $25 million a year. And it's actually the president of the state senate who lives, you know, pretty close to my house, who mm-hmm. uh, pushed these through year after year. And he owns and operates an STL and gets himself a new Lexus every year. He oh, wow. his nephew and his wife. And <laughs> they make tons of money off the state. It's it's a complete grift.
1: And, and, and what ugh, all that money is coming out of a public education system so that they can point to public education and say, look, public education is failing. It's failing in part because they're draining it of its resources.
5: No, exactly. I mean, I've taught in Arizona for the last 12 years and, you know, I've seen the decline of resources and, and I've seen how few people were able to keep a hold of with the low salaries that we have. And I've seen, you know, The decline, right? As it were, I mean, our teachers are doing everything they possibly can, but it's starting to feel like we're all just, you know, holding up this like artifice that's duct taped together and is about to just completely collapse. And, you know, obviously, like you said, this is all done intentionally. To set up, you know, this voucher system, and they want to have every kid on a voucher, and they are very blithe and cavalier and say, "Oh, but you can just choose your public school." It's like, well, if half of our money is being taken out of public schools, half of them will close. We all understand that, right? And so then it's going to become a conversation of who gets access to a public school in their neighborhood and who does not. And I think we all know the answers there because we know which kids always suffer, or do we have a system where the elite and wealthy go to private schools and the poor kids go to public schools? And I will tell you, all of these special interests in Arizona would be perfectly fine with that.
1: What role did COVID play in all of this? I know it was um, uh, a trauma for public education all over the country.
5: Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that I keep kind of pointing to these interests, but but they really are very powerful here. And they work really in tandem with national folks um, who worked in concert with folks like Christopher Rufo, who's gone on record saying that he orchestrated all of this with Tucker Carlson, right? Like All of the CRT wars, the mask wars. The COVID wars, the school closure wars, now the SEL wars, all of these culture wars, basically. He said that he manufactured them to usher in universal school choice, which to him means universal vouchers. And, you know, I mean, he, you don't have to like dig deep to find that. Uh, it's pretty out there, but they were very successful. And I think that these extremists are really good at weaponizing words and at driving ledges in our communities and making people start pointing fingers at each other. And, you know, we are witnessing the destruction of public education and our neighborhoods as we see it, and, you know, as we know it.
1: And, and not being replaced with a system that educates the public. Right? Public education has been under, you know, I mean, it's actually improved in America in the last 30 years, but it's under enormous pressure always and enormous pressure. Critiques, always, that it's not good enough or that it's not fair enough or whatever those critiques are. This voucher system is couched in the language of freedom and fairness, but it does not – I'm aware of no examples where it has created systems of excellence that serve the same population.
5: No, not at all. And in fact, here, you know, we're seeing private schools doing the choosing. So, you know, they like to say school choice, but it's really the school that is doing the choosing. And we see families that are being turned away because the parents or the students are, you know, gay or um, trans, for example, we are seeing a lot of private schools open up that say right there on their website that you have to sign to onto a statement of faith that says there are only two genders, that homosexual behavior is sinful. And, and to me, as a taxpayer, it just it boils my blood to think that my taxpayer dollars are going to prop up schools that are teaching hateful ideology like that. Um, Charlie Kirk, Turning Point USA, has opened up two schools already, and they're planning to open up more. Um, and you know, he teaches like very hateful MAGA pseudo religious doctrine that is really scary and it's hateful to lgbtq youth and adults and i mean it's all pretty terrifying and it's always interesting to me because they call us indoctrinators right like public school educators are indoctrinating but the reality is like they're telegraphing exactly what they intend to do which is to indoctrinate the next generation to I mean, at this point, it really like the writing is on the wall that they want to open up Christian nationalism, right? I mean, that's yeah. who's uh, so, being open up these schools.
1: Uh, for those of you who are joining just uh, more recently, I'm talking to Beth Lewis, who's the director of Save Our Schools in Arizona. Beth, look for, for me. Um, the proper goal of public education is to encourage curiosity and the development of skills and talents of young people so they can better understand and engage and be successful in the world, however they want to go in their lives. But the right wing in America would replace that with a system that doesn't encourage curiosity, but narrows the minds and encourages acceptance of a particular dogma. And and nothing you've said um, tells me I'm wrong in thinking that.
5: I'm sorry, kind of cut out at the end
1: there. What, was there a question at the end? Well, I just I'm you you've supported this view of mine, I guess that the right yeah. w- wants to use education not to free minds to be curious and to develop um, skills and abilities that will make people successful in life, but rather to adopt a dogma. The dogma, mostly right Christian nationalists, but but other ones as well, more dogmatic thinking, and that that cannot help American. Um, creativity, competitiveness, standing in the world, what it, fill in the blank, none of it is helped by that kind of education.
5: No, I think that's exactly right. And, and, you know, I also think it brings together, you know, diverse viewpoints, right? Like I take my kids to a local public school that has a ton of diversity, lots of different, you know, lots of different family backgrounds, racial backgrounds, religions. And that is so valuable to me. And like I – see a future where we're going to have, you know, this type of homeschool co-op and this type of private school. And it really is kind of like this tribalism that I don't think is healthy for democracy. Like, you know, we are a melting pot and we as Americans are used to pride ourselves on that. I think many of us still do. Um, I would really like to get back to that. Instead, we just have bill after bill that these Voucher pushers, you know, they're, they're also trying to completely shut down our classrooms, censor speak. You know, their main focus is worrying about pronouns and, you know, can trans youth use the same bathrooms? I mean, our legislature our is a sick mess right now. Um, and, and they're just attacking public schools and students ad nauseum. It's scary.
1: Yeah, it's a very frightening time. A very frightening time. But you have allies around the country, don't you? There are a lot of other people who are engaged in this fight in other states. Do you ever share
3: notes?
5: Yeah, so we meet with um, other grassroots groups like ours around the country every month. We have, um, you know, like a Zoom call, which is fantastic, and uh, we have folks from you know Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Nebraska. Mississippi, uh, Florida—you name it—and everybody kind of comes yeah. together and shares notes about what, you know, what they're doing to fight back and, and what's going on in their state. And right now, um, you know, for a long time we were sort of like the oh, poor Arizona, but now uh, we're seeing it everywhere. So. We're just trying to sort of provide a lot of data and evidence about how this rollout is going here to help other folks fight in their states. And um, I've been talking to reporters all around the country and just give them the facts. Like, here's what's going on so that their their voters can have a little bit more insight because we were lied to, you know. And, and we tried to let the public know, but I think sometimes you can only... Um, can only hy- fight hypotheticals for so long before people kind of say, well, is it really going to be that bad? You know, it's just human nature. And so now the thing is fast here and people are all coming to us and saying, wow, you know, you really, you really nailed that rollout. You knew exactly what was going to happen. And, and uh, it, it, it's not, it gives us no joy.
1: <laughs> well, so what's going to happen if the, if you lose and, and we go five years this way, there will be not public school. Like we've, like we've known it all these years, there will be schools that are supported by public money. And I suppose someone will call them the new public schools, but they won't accept um, all the state's kids. I mean, in in the city I live in, you know, there are 15,000 homeless children who go to public schools Right, and they come. They, they, their parents are barely keeping, you know, keeping it together, and they go from a shelter to a aunt's couch to somewhere else. But the kids end up going to school. There'd be no place for kids like that in this system, and and, and I guess no place for kids of of um gay parents, or you know, I mean, it's how do they how what does that future look like? I don't even. I can't imagine. We're we're seeing stories around the country of child labor making a comeback. I mean, is this really the future that we're looking at? Like the, you know, early, mid-1800s where kids, instead of going to school, worked in factories? Is that that what's coming to Arizona?
5: I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure there. I do know that we've watered down have education so much that we now have um, half days are allowable. So, you know, if I am a parent and I want my kids to just go to, like, my homeschool co-op for four hours a day or just use the local bounce house for two hours and go to my neighbor's house for piano lessons, I can call that an education. And And take the state's money for it yeah yes I can get seven thousand dollars per child so if I have five kids, I can have thirty five thousand dollars. I can literally download a template and make them a transcript and graduate them myself um under this law using state dollars and If I only spend like five hundred dollars per kid each year, I can roll all the rest of it over year to year and save up for college. Um, which is just wild to me as a public school teacher who, you know, I mean, frankly, like our family is struggling to figure out how we're going to pay for college. And my kids are in yep. fourth and fifth grade. And it's like, well, now, I don't know that they're going to have that opportunity. Whereas people exiting the public system could save, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to send their kids to Stanford.
1: It's Well, the kids won't, the kids Stanford will fail on day one. <laughs> yeah. And, and, they, and, they, and they won't be prepared. I mean, what people do? People really not understand that education is work, and that you have to work hard to shape your mind to be ready for the world you're in. I really they don't
5: deal. I really don't. I mean, it's this blight, like it's this this attitude out here. I can't, I can't explain it to you. It's like, oh, they'll be fine, and you know, oh, those those that kid got kicked out of school because their parents were gay. Well, they can just go try another school. Like, do you have know the trauma that's associated with that? Oh for my gosh. Beth. Just well, so horrific.
1: <laughs> I, I I really appreciate your coming on uh, to tell us up here in the nice, chilly upper Midwest about this uh, t- horrific fight that you're in in Arizona. And I I wish you the best, and let's stay in touch. I'd like to hear how you're progressing.
5: Absolutely, and thank you for letting us share our story so that. Illinois and others in your network can avoid the same fate. I'm happy to help with anything I can. You're
1: the best. Thank you, Beth. Really appreciate it. All
5: right. Take care, everyone. Thanks.
1: Bye. All right, we're going to take a break for the news, and when we come back, I caught up with Sam Levine, and I'll tell you about that uh, as soon as we get back.
0: You're looking at The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPD 820.
1: Okay, welcome back. A little after three o'clock here in Chicago. This is the hour where I take your calls at 773-763-9278. But first, I wanted to share with you a conversation I recently had with Sam Levine. He is, as some of you remember, the Guardian's uh, journalist who covers elections, voting rights, and the democracy. Um, I caught up to him just yesterday. Here's that uh, conversation. Uh, Sam, it's been a while since you and I last spoke. In fact, we last spoke before the election. So could you just round up for us some of the election laws and changes since that time? I think there's some good news and some bad news.
6: That's right. There has been some good news um, and bad news. Uh, You know, state state legislatures are meeting and once again, are returning to voting rights as an issue that is, you know, a top priority Uh, in Texas, for example, you know, where the state legislature only meets every other year, there are a suite of bills dealing with voting, um, particularly taking aim at, you know, one bill in particular would expand the attorney general's ability to prosecute voter uh, fraud. Um, Florida similarly has looked at that and uh, recently passed a bill that expands the state's ability to go after people for voter fraud. Um, In Minnesota this week, they just passed a bill that would allow people to vote uh, once they're released from prison. The state previously didn't allow people to vote if they were on probation or parole, but the state recently changed that the, the state didn't allow people to vote if they were on probation or parole but the state legislature recently changed that to say that you can vote once you're released from prison which is a huge deal in minnesota it should affect could affect it could affect more than fifty thousand um, people there which would be a huge deal
1: sam there seem to be two kinds of actions that are both talked about as voter protection or election integrity laws In Minnesota, for example, you have election law changes to expand the franchise. This is the sort of thing that's happened, you know, all my life. But then now there's, um, well, it's hard really for me to know what to call it. It's a response to a popular delusion, a madness of crowds that results in legislation that narrows the franchise or creates harsher enforcement that looks like intimidation. That's what's going on in Texas and Florida and other places.
5: Well,
6: I think a line that we've seen coming from Republicans now is that, you know, people don't have faith in the integrity of our elections. And so we should pass laws that restore people's faith in election results that could make people more confident in election results. So this was something we saw recently in Ohio, uh, where Republicans, uh, this year passed a law that increases the, the photo ID requirement. It makes it stricter um, among other changes. And, you know, there's no evidence of voter fraud, no evidence of, you know, widespread voter impersonation, which is what voter ID would prevent. But you hear Republican lawmakers saying, you know, people don't have confidence in the results of American elections, so we need to take whatever step we can to reassure them and to give them more confident so that's why this measure is justified and i think taking a step back there you know you really have to look at why is it that people don't have confidence in the results of elections Uh, you know it would seem that you know you have republicans who have been out there president trump and others very loudly you know questioning election results saying that elections can't be trusted that there's cheating but when it comes down to it, there hasn't really been ev- any evidence to substantiate that. Nonetheless, we've seen lawmakers turn that fear, that disbelief in elections into a pretext or justification for making it harder to vote.
1: Sam, you and I have been talking for more than a year now, so you know that I'm going to go further than than you just did and, and push a little bit. Um, <laughs> The public doubts elections because we've been told to doubt them, which you just said. But the Republicans say, gee whiz, we need to do extra things to restore confidence because people, notwithstanding the fact that we told them to, people are concerned about election integrity. And yet this week, I I learned, I don't know if it was news before, That the former attorney general in Arizona actually hid his own staff's uh, study that would have told the people of Arizona, you know what, our elections are free and fair. So I I push back on language that says there's really no evidence that our elections uh, have been tampered with, because I think there is tons of evidence that the elections are fair.
6: There is tons of evidence that elections are fair and, you know, every time that someone takes a serious look at it, it turns out that there is no significant evidence to support claims of fraud. And I think the example that you just mentioned in Arizona is a really good example of that. You know, what happened in Arizona is you had a Republican attorney general, Mark Bonavich, who had political aspirations. He was running for the U.S. Senate and sort of took on these claims of fraud in Arizona. He said his office was going to investigate them, you know, would, you know, dig into all of them. And it turned out, we learned this week, that his office really spent a considerable amount of time looking into it. I think the reports, they spent over 10,000 hours, uh, 60 investigators at one point or another, were assigned to help looking into, you know, investigate allegations of fraud in the 2020 election. And at the end of the day, they really were able to run down almost every claim and debunk it. Uh, But what Bernie General released publicly at the time, you know, said that, but it also sort of tried to walk the line by also playing to Republican, you know, fears about voter fraud. It tried to play into the The conspiracy theories, you know, he would say things like, you know, we debunked these claims, but we still found, you know, considerable issues with the way ballots were handled. We debunked these claims, but, you know, Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is, didn't turn over all of the information that they should have. And what came to light this week in this report or in these documents that were released as part of a public records request was that. Internally, the Attorney general's staff was pushing back on that narrative and saying, "No, actually, we looked into this and we don't think that there were significant errors that would have affected the outcome of the election. You know actually, we think Maricopa County was quite good in the way it, it turned over all of the documents. So there was sort of this finessing of what information was released to make it seem like even though you know, a lot of these claims were being debunked that there still could be something out there. So I think it's a really good example of sort of the the fine line that a lot of Republicans are trying to walk when it comes to these claims of both you know trying to seem like a reasonable person and not, you know, playing into voter fraud, but also sort of fanning the flames a little bit.
1: Right. So they want to say we in, in order to restore voter integrity and confidence in the elections we need to make it harder for people to vote Um, we need to make it particularly hard for lower income people to vote but if we have evidence that could restore people's confidence in elections that we should hide that's how i read it and i i'm not sure that's unfair and and what colors my judgment a little bit sam is that bernovich this guy in Arizona is the same Burnovich who is part of this famous and awful Supreme Court case that gutted Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So you couldn't enforce the uh, uh, changes to voting rights anymore.
6: I think I think that's it's correct to say that there were parts of this report that certainly could have assuaged concerns about. Illegality about wrongdoing, about malfeasance that have been deliberately not addressed or concealed to at least leave the impression that there could have been something amiss when there was evidence that there was not, or it was not the widespread belief internally that something had gone amiss. And I think, you know, there's no question that Brnovich, the, now, former Attorney General of Arizona, is someone who had higher political ambitions, he's someone who personally argued that case at the U.S. Supreme Court, seeking to, um, you know, uphold Arizona's ballot collection ban um, and things like that. And it's a case that has, you know, very profound implications for the Voting Rights Act. So, I think there's no question that he understood the political, um, the political sensitivities around this.
1: Yeah, he sure did. Um, well, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you report on this with the care and um, uh, detachment that you do. I think it's enormously important that there are people who aren't um, as inflamed by it as me, but can look at it dispassionately and report on it. So I'm, uh, I continue to be really impressed. Let, let's turn to something a little bit different, efforts to disenfranchise young voters. Uh, particularly college students, I I talked to somebody the other day who said the students at Ohio State University, for example, are just not going to be able to vote.
6: Well, I think that, you know, over the last few years, we've seen across the country, you know, multifaceted efforts to make it harder for students to vote. Um, You know, one of the ways that we often see this is through voter ID requirements and, you know, what types of ID are acceptable when you go to vote. Can you use a student ID? And there have been lengthy battles over that um, in places like Wisconsin. It's the first place that comes to mind. And obviously, you know, if you're a student who is going to school in Wisconsin or Ohio, but you're from out of state, you know, you are Temporary, temporarily living, you know, in a place and, you know, you might want to retain your driver's license from your home state or wherever and might not have the time or might not have the money to go and, you know, get a new driver's license. So easy to see how, you know, provision restricting what kinds of IDs are acceptable could have a significant impact on students. More recently we've seen an effort to just outright ban early voting sites um, on college campuses, there's a bill in Texas that would 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 block voting sites from appearing on college campuses. There's a similar effort in Florida a few years ago that eventually got overturned in court. And if you think about it, you can see how significant that is for students who are you know running back and forth between classes who have lots of commitments. You know it makes a big difference if they can vote you know, at the student union or at the gym on campus versus if they have to go a mile away to another location. That might not make a big difference to someone else who can take, you know, their lunch break or whenever to go and vote. But for a student who's you know running around during the day it could make a huge, huge difference. So I think, I think that's definitely a trend to keep an eye on. I'm really worried
1: that the idea that voting, that the integrity of voting is in question when your guy doesn't win um, is really what we're talking about, because there's no evidence other than the results that are driving people to say that the elections have no integrity. You've looked. Everybody's looked. We think we run free and fair elections. And when we find that information, if it doesn't support the candidates we want, as we learned from Mr. Bernovich, we just hide that information. So now we get to the Supreme Court this term, considering a case that will let legislatures pick the winners of elections, choose the uh, electors to the Electoral College, for example. This is this um, case in Mississippi. I. I are you worried? I mean, am I, I want to ask this the right way. You, you've said there's no evidence of voter fraud. So I should ask this way. Is there any evidence that I might be cor- correct in thinking that, um, you could use the same argument in, oh, I don't know, Wisconsin or Mississippi. If the voters vote the wrong way, you could say, gee, there's just, real doubt about the integrity of that vote because it's not the one we want. So let's just change it by judicial fiat.
6: Well, I think what we saw in 2020 was a strategy to, there was a strategy from the Trump campaign and others to pressure state legislatures to try and overturn the results of an election in their state absent any, evidence of fraud or widespread wrongdoing. And, you know, it was rejected by, you know, every court that it came before. Um, But now that this idea has been introduced, I think it's an idea that, you know, we could see people try and push more seriously in future elections. You know there's a case like you mentioned before the Supreme Court right now called Moore v. Harper it's from North Carolina and it would basically limit Thank the you ability for that correction. Of state, it, it it would limit the ability of a state supreme court to weigh in on federal election rules and that could be very, very significant, you know, that would limit state court's ability to weigh in on partisan gerrymandering claims. It would limit a state court from having anything to say about a, uh, voter ID law or any other voting law when it comes to, um, federal elections. Um, legally, it would sort of be another step to say that, um, you know, that legislatures have the absolute authority to pick the electors no matter what. Um, But this is certainly a case that's trying to go down that road and in that direction.
1: Right. And my point is that until the right gets the results it wants from elections, it's the evidence to me suggests they're going to try and raise doubts about the integrity of the elections, because the doubts are not coming from any other fact pattern except the results of the votes.
6: I think that we've seen very little incentive for candidates not to uh, claim that the, the election was rigged if they lose. It's clearly an issue that inflames voters. It you know makes people feel like they weren't on a losing team, that they were cheated, and it you know it, it riles up people to, you know, remain engaged and involved. And, you know, there's no sanction, there's no consequence for, you know, claiming that your election was rigged. In fact, it seems to be the opposite. It keeps you in the spotlight. It keeps you, you know, endear to your supporters. So I think it's definitely something that we'll continue to see in the future.
1: Right. But the health of our democracy um, is incentive for some people and during you know, during the last election cycle and here i want to give credit and people on this show have heard me do it before uh, to the losers republicans as well as democrats who said you know i lost i lost in a fair election dr oz lost went back to new jersey you know um, i think across the country only a handful of people stood up and said you know i didn't really lose it was Fraud. Kerry Lake goes into that abysmal company. But even Caramo in Michigan owned up to losing.
6: Right. We did see a number of candidates who were election deniers, who, you know, questioned the integrity of the 2020 election, who, when it came to their own elections last year, conceded. And I think you're right. I think they do deserve a lot of credit. Um, for doing that, but you know, conceding an election is sort of the bare minimum. I think that we should expect from from a candidate, and it's still somewhat encouraging to see people, um, some but not all people, clearing that bar.
1: Yeah, my expectations on that side are low, but I'm still happy when they meet them. Um, can we turn to Florida for a minute? I, I it feels like a state where it, where intimidation is on steroids. And here, I I, I think about what's happened to schools, um, the uh, emptying of bookshelves, the firing of teachers who take pictures of empty bookshelves, but that's also crossed over into voting, hasn't it?
6: Yes, there are a number of cases that I've been following in Florida since the summer that I think are cause for significant alarm. Uh, Florida under the direction of Governor DeSantis created an office, um, last year that's dedicated entirely to prosecuting election fraud. And last summer it announced its first indictment of, of 19 people that were, that the states that had committed voter fraud. Uh, these were all people who had prior felony convictions who registered and voted. And the governor had this big press conference. It was at a, courthouse in Broward County. He was flanked by uh, sheriffs, deputies, and law enforcement. And the governor came out and said, you know, if you if you commit voter fraud, you will pay the price. Very sort of muscular, you know, intentional signal that we are watching and we are going to crack down. And what came out in, you know, my reporting and reporting of others who have been following these cases is that Almost all of these people had no idea they were ineligible to vote. And actually, the state of Florida sent them voter registration cards. They had been encouraged to register in one form or the other. Some people were approached by canvassers at the local supermarket or, or had been asked if they wanted to register to vote when they were renewing their driver's license and submitted an application, received a voter registration card, and voted. And the state never told them they were ineligible until years after they voted. And the governor and this new office have decided to go after them anyway, um, which I think sends a very clear message that if you're unsure about your eligibility, if you have any question, you know, don't risk it because if it turns out you're wrong, You know, you could be arrested for a new crime. There's a second issue in Florida that has developed that I think is also cause for concern. And it's a jurisdictional issue over whether or not the statewide prosecutor has the power to go after people for voter fraud. So in these 19 cases, it's the statewide prosecutor Who brought the charges not local district attorneys and in florida the statewide prosecutor is supposed to handle big cases you know that involve conspiracies across multiple judicial circuits so you know if you committed a crime that involved different places in the state and some almost all of the defendants in these cases have argued wait a minute You know, I only, I registered to vote in one county. I voted in one county. I never left my county. The statewide prosecutor doesn't have the authority to bring the charges against me and my case should be dismissed. And there have been judges in several of these cases who have agreed with that argument and have dismissed the charges against these people on those jurisdictional grounds. And after those dismissals came, The governor went back to the legislature and got them to pass a bill recently. This happened just in the last few weeks that basically clarifies that the statewide prosecutor can go after these people, that they modify, they clarify the authority of the statewide prosecutor to bring these charges. So now there's an additional layer on it of you have people who say they were confused who are being prosecuted and the state is now going out of its way to give a prosecutor the power to go after these people you know for cases that again appear to be the result of confusion um, these cases are slowly making their way through the court system some people have taken plea deals um, one person was convicted at trial of illegally registering to vote he was acquitted on the charge of actually illegally voting but none of these cases have resulted in significant punishment um in the in the plea agreements prosecutors you know have been willing to agree to to no jail time or significant punishment which i think is a signal that you know despite the bluster when these charges were announced that these are not crimes that the state believes to be significant um, and is willing to do away with 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 little punishment.
1: Right. But the self-censorship that goes on when you face that kind of intimidation is real. And I'm glad you raised it. It's frightening. I have one other topic I wanted to raise with you, and it's a little bit off of voting. But I know that you've been paying attention to this uh, Separate but equal, I guess, judicial district in Mississippi. Can you tell people about that uh, topic and why it's raised some concerns?
6: This is an issue that's been developing over the last few weeks in Jackson, which is the capital of Mississippi. It's a city that is majority black. Um, it's a city that has had, you know, significant um issues over the last few years, which have been widely reported, including issues with its, you know, water. Um, and there is a, the way it's structured now is there is a special district. It's a small district that includes sort of the center of Jackson that include with the state Capitol building and other government buildings that's basically policed by its own Um, police force and there's a proposal in the legislature to basically dramatically expand that district to include almost all of the white areas in Jackson. Our analysis showed that I think it was 80% of the white population in Jackson would be included in this district. And in addition to having its own police force, this proposal would make it so that there would be a separate court system for this area. So the, the, the judges would be appointed by the chief justice of the Mississippi Supreme Court, who's white, um, the prosecutor for this district would be appointed. So it's, it's carving out a very significant chunk of Jackson and would essentially be giving it its own legal system that you know the residents of Jackson would have no say in electing. It's drawn, you know, comparisons to <clears throat> it's drawn comparisons to apartheid there, you know, essentially saying that you're gonna have one legal system for the white areas and another for the black areas.
5: And it's undermining
6: the ability, the democratic ability of the citizens of Jackson to elect their leaders. Um, and as someone there pointed out to me, I mean, you can just imagine if you're a black resident in Jackson and you go into this district that includes, you know, a lot of the major commercial establishments, you know, you might be treated very differently by this separate police and, and legal system there than you are in, you know, the 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 rest of the city where where it's democratically elected. So I think this idea of creating an entirely separate legal and police apparatus in a city that's majority black is definitely something that's worth continuing to pay attention to.
1: Sam, what possible explanation is given for wanting to do this?
6: The sponsor of the bill to do this, who, who does not live in Jackson has said that it's needed to do something about the crime rate in Jackson, that crime is out of control there and that they need to do something um, dramatic to to rein in the crime. Um, But as some people I've talked to have pointed out, that rationale really doesn't hold weight because, you know, this is not, this district doesn't appear to be taking in some of the most high crime areas. In fact, it's a district that would take in most of the, you know, the wealthier areas, the white areas in the city. So I think that that rationale um, has not got a lot of supporters.
1: Is there any other possible explanation if the one they're offering makes no sense?
6: No, I think, uh, you know, legitimate explanation. Um, You know, it it appears to be an effort to sort of wrest um, political power from, you know, a city in Mississippi a city in Mississippi that is majority black.
1: Okay, well, that's something we all have to pay attention to. I, um, you know the arc of my life, I mean I, I, I sort of became a uh, thinking citizen around the ends of the great civil rights push in the early 1960s. Right. So for my whole life, and you know, I'm rounding third base, but we have expanded suffrage. We have tried to overcome um, uh, the, the historic separation of races in America, and America's made enormous progress. Uh, but what you're describing to me seems to be a revanchist effort to claw back that progress, whether it's in voting rights or in, or in judicial fairness or in the way we police or the use of violence as a m- political metaphor, if not as a, a way to protect people from real violence. All of that is stuff you report on. And it's so important, Sam. I'm very grateful to you for your time, as usual.
6: Thanks so much for having me, Edwin. I appreciate it as well.
1: You're welcome. Okay, everybody, that was uh, Sam Levine, the reporter from The Guardian, who covers uh, elections, voting rights, and democracy in America pretty chilling conversation but now it's time to hear from you 773-763-9278 we will take a break and when we come back it's your turn
0: you're listening to the big picture with edwin, edwin eisendrath days. on wcpt 820
1: okay everybody 773-763-9278 jim hello there
3: uh good afternoon edwin uh, I've listened to, and since the pandemic, I became a radio uh, person. I never listened to radio in my life. This pandemic, I, I've listened to the Republican channels religiously also. And they're always talking about Hillsdale College. They're pushing Hillsdale College, Hillsdale College. Well, finally, I see a commercial on TV. This professor looks like a uh, 21st century John that Edwards preacher he said i'll teach you how to interpret genesis and i'll teach you how to interpret the constitution and i'll teach you which how to approach the outhouse if you're a republican if the wind's blowing north or south i mean the point is edwin that these republicans have gone to the point where you're talking the federalist society you're talking uh The Heritage Foundation, now it's this Hillsdale Cow. And the problem with this is, is 40% of the people, the statistic is mind-blowing, believe that we dined on dinosaur burgers when we were Neanderthals. We actually existed with the dinosaurs. 40% of the people believe that. And when Trump says, I like the uneducated, he's not kidding. and he's not kidding. And that's our problem. Now, uh, as Cat is my judge, in civics, I could tell you by the third grade, the separation of church and state. And I went to a Catholic school. I went to 16 years of Catholic education. And w- there was no way we were voting. Uh, we were voting. our We were taught to vote our conscience, whatever our civic uh, duty was. We were never told not to vote under any circumstances. And this is a problem with the Republican Party. Anyway, Edwin, thanks for taking my call. Thank you very much.
1: Nope. Thanks for calling. And I'll be honest with you. I think I am living with dinosaurs all the time every time I write about the GOP. So I I don't know. That part I might actually agree with them on. Um, But thank you for that call. Uh, And let's see. Steve, hi there.
7: Yes, uh, I wanted to make a point with regard to a lot of the subjects that you brought up today in terms of what links all of them. I mean, what what is it about, for instance, the desire to privatize our school system and to suppress voting and all of these other things? What What is a, a sort of common thread there? And I mean, take, for instance, Arizona. Anybody who's ever been to Arizona, I was just there or in Sedona. Um, you know, if you go through the neighborhoods, especially the middle class of middle class neighborhoods, nice neighborhoods, it, it's by and large a uh, white people, and in many cases, older white people, It's a retirement haven. Um, now, at the same time, then, when you go to restaurants, when you go to hotels, when you go to anywhere where you need low-skilled labor, is the backbone of the state, you find people who are anything but white doing those jobs. So Arizona, like Texas, like so many other states, has this sort of schizophrenic relationship with this uh, issue in that they need these people to do the jobs that nobody else is willing to do. But at the same time, when that, that demand begins to change their demographics so that, oh, my God, you know, um, now our public schools don't look like we do, then all of a sudden you, know, you have to do something about that. And, and that uh, also uh, connects to the whole undercurrent of anti-intellectualism, which is, has always existed in the Republican Party, but now it's no longer an undercurrent. Uh, I would argue that it's a mainstay of the Republican Party. They, they, this is now a party that's openly telling people College is for suckers. Um, you don't need to send your kids to school there. It's just a big a socialist indoctrination camp. Um, what that will mean demographically for, for those people going, uh, going forward, I don't know if they actually buy into that because study after study will tell you that there, there's a direct relationship between your long-term earnings, your wealth, where you will end up in life the likelihood that you'll be unemployed, and, and, and a college education. I mean, uh, so this idea that, you know, you don't need it anymore or that you go out and just become Mark Zuckerberg, you know, and drop out of school and, you know, you'll be fine. It's just ridiculous. But that's what they're trying to sell these kids on. So I I think that a lot of these things, uh, you know, again, they they, they tie into one another. And and this is exactly what a lot of people are trying to exploit in terms of, you know, making money off of idiocy because people will buy into this. So, in other words, I don't want to send my kids to school because I don't like what they're teaching. I don't like the people that they're sitting next to. So I can send them to some sort of alternative school, some sort of private school, and forget the fact that, as you pointed out, when they graduate, I don't care what, what it says on their certificate, and Harvard and Yale, University of Chicago and Northwestern are going to laugh at those kids. And even if they magically somehow manage to get in, they're not going to survive. That's why freshman classes look exponentially larger than graduate classes at every university. You know, you don't just simply get a diploma because you get to get in, even at a state school. You actually have to do the work graduate and if you're not prepared for that dynamic then i don't know what to tell you you know you will have spent a lot of money to only to be told that guess what yeah, you weren't you really didn't belong at a college to begin with because you weren't prepared for it
1: so i'm guessing uh you don't have a lot of high hopes for the uh, voucher experiment we were hearing about in arizona
7: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely not. And I think part of the thing that uh, that sometimes gets lost in the discussion is that the, the reason that they're able to move forward on a lot of this agenda is the transitory nature of, of, of this kind of thing. Because for a lot of parents, you know, my kid is in school X number of years and that's it beforehand. I don't care. And once they're done or almost done, I really don't care because it doesn't impact them. So, but other people have decades of, of interest because they're going to be running these schools generationally. So, you know, so the bosses of the world want to make sure that they're going to be able to do it. And their kids will inherit that system. Their grandkids will inherit it. They, they're to exploit it for what it's worth in money. But for the average person, you know, if they're in a terrible school and somebody comes along and says, well, you know what? I can offer you a voucher and you can go to school at a, at a better school. And some of them are better. And some of our worst public schools, absolutely. But on the whole, it's a terrible system. They, they, or eventually, we'll just suck funds out of the public school system. But I can't, be, I can't vilify too many people who are in terrible schools and someone wants to hand their child a lottery ticket. Because there are, again, some decent uh, private schools that are in this voucher system. And that's what they're exploiting. They're, they're selling the dream that you're going to get that better education, when in reality, you're probably not. And that, unfortunately, is, again, uh, another way that that we're exploiting people at the bottom.
5: All
1: right, Steve. Thank you for that. Have a good week. We'll talk to you next week.
3: Um, Ron? Ron, are you there? Hi there. Hello, Edwin. Edwin, a few hours ago, Hal Sparks made an attack on Seymour Hersh. He said something to the effect of, he gets too much information. And where does he get his information? In the, uh, uh, about uh, reporting on the CIA and their activities in Ukraine. In other words, he's implying that Seymour Hersh may be an agent for the Soviet Union or Russia or Putin. Now it is now I'll take Seymour Hersh's credentials over Hell uh, Sparks' any day. Okay. Now I'm a, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and uh, it, Seymour Hersh is one of the heroes to me uh, for the anti-war movement. It, 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 now, it, now is. Hal Sparks' wing of the CIA-sponsored progressive movement, are they now going to attack the Soviet Union, the Russian support of Vietnam and China's support against the war in Vietnam? Is this this the new rewriting of history, according to uh, Hal Sparks? Um, What's what's the CIA agent's name? Uh, um, uh, Malcolm Nance? Is this the, you know, anything that the Soviet Union supported – you know, in, in Africa, where the, the Soviet Union and Cuba supported against white supremacy, fought, fought against Rhodesia, uh, uh, South Africa, and today South Africa, Russia and China are doing war games together. Is it because they remember their friends who fought against white supremacy uh, against the United States and Western Europe because they controlled the African colonial empire? You know, this rewriting of history, it, it's its getting confusing and I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, Edwin. You know, it's 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 just a little hard. Okay, it's help me out. Okay, well, um, I didn't hear
1: Hal Sparks uh, today, so I'm not sure what he's talking about. Cy Hirsch has got a long and distinguished career. Um, uh, history is now. There's a really interesting question somewhere in here about how we should think about history. We should always be rethinking history, right? And and I suppose we should all be um, not making up facts, but looking at them with fresh eyes to understand what the implications, you know, how we better understand history and better understand ourselves in that conversation. Um, I'm not Uh, I I can't go into detail about the arguments you've made. It's not my thing. I don't know enough about it. Um, So you'll have to forgive me for not uh, really diving into, uh, you know, who's where on on this. But I I can tell you where I am. I mean, um, uh, the the Soviet Union's history uh, was terrible, uh, oppressive, cruel, murderous, um, set the world back. And, and you know, lasted 60 years. What, what's shocking to me, when you think about that, and it feels like ancient history, is that the Ayatollahs in Iran now, that was 79, you know, that they're 40% the way they would have lasted as long as the Soviet regime. It's really, repressive regimes um, aren't as fragile as we believers in democracy like to think. And I know we are having our own issues with our democracy right now. So, um I am all for, uh, uh, you know, looking at history, not being provocative about it, but looking at it with an eye towards what it can teach us. I hope that helps, but I, I can't speak to the specific item that you asked about.
3: The specific item, I believe, was the Nordstrom Pipeline that Seymour Hirsch has proof that it was sabotaged by NATO forces. I think. That's yeah. Well, a I, you know,
1: uh, we'll all wait and see it. We'll all wait and have that discussion. Um, I think that would be a surprise and a scandal if it were true, right? It would be a... Well, I uh, we- <laughs> I mean, these. You know, it, it is. It may have gone to Russia, but it is our. It, it is a. Uh, it was going to an ally, so I, I think that would be. Deeply surprising, if it were true. But again, uh, the world is filled with, I mean, so I don't want to, you know what, I don't want to credit it to the sense of we're creating a conspiracy theory or anything else. A a guy with a long history of reporting says something, you know what, we'll now take the time, we'll figure it out. We'll look at the data. That's, this goes back to something in the very beginning of this show I talked about, which is the actual importance of, of honest oversight in government. Right. Which we don't have with the Republicans in charge. But a really good, honest oversight committee um, would be able to help us understand this better um, to the extent that we ever could around uh, the national security sort of secrets around it. But I hope that I hope that it's not true. I really hope that it's not true. Thank you, Edna. Have a good week. You bet. You bet. You too. OK, we are. Um, running low on time, but I can take a few more at 773 763 9278. But I assume that you're not calling if you're in Chicago because you're going door to door for a mayoral election or you are making a plan for yourself to go vote um, on this uh, really you know historic and important election we're having. Brian, what's on your mind?
8: Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, I'm calling you from Albuquerque. I've called you before, and I just wanted to uh, point out there's a new crack developing in our American politics, and it's the freshwater shortage out here in the desert southwest. And it's going to get really interesting because the states that are really going to be in the bind first are very Republican states, Arizona and Utah, and then Nevada after that. Luckily, here in New Mexico, we have the Rio Grande flowing through town, and it actually has water in it. So we're not, we're not in great shape, but we're a lot better off than all the other cities in this area. And uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how these conservative, no-government politicians and the states that sponsor them are going to start fighting for some type of fresh water supply. It's really going to get uh, quite squirrely. It's not going to fit the molds that we've been living in for the last couple decades. And then I also want to point out that this shortage of fresh water is a metaphor for how we're moving into a politics of limitations, I think. So much of American political ideology or fantasy is that everybody can have everything. Everybody's going to get better. You can drive a bigger car. You can live in a bigger house. Everything will get bigger and better. Well, that's not true. And we got to start limiting our... Uh, hydrocarbon consumption or start taking CO2 out of the air, and we got to figure out how we're going to get fresh water to all these millions of people out here, and it's going to continue to get worse in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And if you do believe in climate change, the oceans are going to rise and people are going to have to move away from the coast, like people that live in Florida, another Republican state that in the future, 10, 20 years is going to be all start sounding really socialist when they let the government, the federal government taxpayers to step in and save them. So I just want to let you know what's going on out here.
1: Well, these are really important issues. The water one um, is so complicated because the laws that, and the contracts around water, the way it has been done for years, um, uh, are, are not fit for the time we're in for sure. Um, but there are all kinds of complications, interstate compacts, about who gets first, yeah. second, and third draw and on I'm water.
8: Gonna, and, you and, in a nutshell, they did studies in the 1920s on the river flow of the Colorado River. And they used that that study, the, the results of that study, to divvy up the water rights. Well, it turns out 30, 40 years later, they did a more accurate uh, how do you say it, geologically-based study of the Colorado River, and they realized that the 1920s were an unusually wet period, and it was flowing to like 17 million acre-feet a year, but in reality, the average is only 13 million acre-feet per year. And we they saw like 16 million feet of water with, that they don't even have to begin with. And then you have pro-growth, pro-Republican states like Arizona, where everybody and their brothers, you know, buying a house there now and they're moving out of California in Chicago. Well, they're going to run out of water or the federal government's going to start spending lots of money to bring them water. So this is just, this is just the tip of the iceberg just starting to surface. And it's really going to get interesting. So.
1: No, I, I agree with you. It's interesting and frightening. And um And and there are also, you know, issues, treaty rights with Native Americans out there for water. So all of this is much, much more complicated than than people imagine. And we may not have the tools. But thank you for raising it. Really important issue. Have a good day. You too. Take care. All right, Roosevelt, uh, you have waited to get the final word, I think.
9: Thank you, Double E. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. So far for having a liberal media, huh? Tucker Carlson gets what? 40, how many? 4,400 hours of camera work?
1: Yeah, I can't answer for Tucker Carlson.
9: Yeah, but uh, the problem is not so much Tucker Carlson. The problem is the guy that gave him that footage uh, 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 McCarthy, and he didn't give it to the rest of the media. So that's my point
1: can we can we take a minute and i think this is good to do with you because i haven't done it yet um but while we're talking about the august uh uh chatterboxes at fox to take just a minute to enjoy the fact that they have been completely caught out um, because we now know what they thought of the big lie before they made it you know a national phenomenon i mean how great is that yeah
9: and, and Tucker is going to be manipulating history. He's going to be playing with uh, with the camera of all those uh, uh, hours of uh, of the insurrection. He's he gonna, sure is going to try. That's what he does. He's going to try. But, but here's the thing. The original was out, meaning I saw everything live. I saw when that young lady, that uh, domestic terrorist, and that's what she was. I don't know if you agree with that. I know I'm, I started... Uh, I uh, started a lot of problems by saying that she was a domestic terrorist. But to me, that's what she was. She was not invited I, there. I, I don't disagree with you. I'm still sorry she was killed. No, of course. No, that goes without saying. Yeah. Uh, she was uh, convinced that uh, her president needed her there. And he he's the one that instigated everything. He's the one that invited everybody. So
1: what a bunch. So yeah well all right uh are you hang on are you are you have you voted
9: not yet actually i'm going today at my local library over here excellent excellent Uh, very important you you know you want to ask me who i'm voting for go ahead all right who are you
1: voting for (laughs)
9: Brandon johnson that's oh
1: that's interesting yeah that's interesting yeah he certainly got a lot of support from a lot of people. It's a very interesting uh, time. Yep.
9: And I want somebody that's going to reform the police department. I want somebody that's going to tackle the problem of uh, uh, mentally uh, people that are out in the street and, and help them out and they, so that they don't wind up dead or in jail because they shouldn't be in jail if they have uh, problems with their, with their mental health.
1: Well, again, it's a really complicated time in a really interesting city and a mayor's race like I've never seen with the sort of different points of view that are out there. So uh, I'll let you go vote and listen, everybody, thank you for joining me uh, again in another sort of crazy week of news. Um, but as I said, uh, it's really important for us to keep in mind the connection between um, our politics and our culture and how they are so deeply intertwined. And I think those guys at Fox have done, a frankly, a better job than we have on focusing on those cultural, and I don't mean, you know, cultural issues politically. I mean, who we are, the issues of our culture. And if we pay attention to that and pay attention to who we want to be, who we want to be, Um, and keep that, you know, in the top of our minds and not get dragged onto every ridiculous, dumb, silly, um, uh, uh, hyperventilating argument that we hear from our friends at Fox and on the right, Uh, we're going to be okay. We're going to be like, uh, we're going to, our experience is going to mirror that of Ben's in Wisconsin, where it's just a delight to get up in the morning and be part of a fight that matters. And that, I think, is uh, uh, reason enough for all of you Chicagoans to get out there and go vote. And I look forward to talking to you about uh, all that has transpired when we get together next week. Until then, enjoy your week. Take care.